Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport in right relationship to your life. But of course, we learned over time that all of our um, pain must be caused by tissue damage, must be caused by a structural problem. That's the old model, and when I, when I was looking at things purely from a biomechanical perspective and problem solving, maybe like you, I'd collect a ton of data, and that made people feel safe. That made people feel like I was you know, doing a good, thorough job for them. Overturning all the stones. For sure, yeah. yeah, and I think there's a lot of value in that to help people reduce fear, and it really gives you and I, as clinicians, um, a great starting point to be able to say, what do we really need to focus on? Um, but as I moved away from that, I'm realizing that because the brain is in charge, um, just relying on those biomechanical ideas wasn't helping everybody. Greetings and salutations, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Cycling in Alignment. Today's podcast guest is Charlie Merrill. Charlie's a PT who owns a practice here in Boulder, Colorado. It's called Merrill Performance. He has a couple of decades of experience under his belt and he shares some of his insight with us today. Our conversation gets deep into how athletes experience pain, and we touch on the biopsychosocial pain model. I'm sure you'll find it quite illuminating. Charlie's a very open person who walks through the world with a perspective of gratitude. I appreciate this deeply. He also refers to me as a clinician, which is a generous descriptor. I think I'm more just like a guy who used to race his bike, trying to figure things out. And you teach what you need to learn. So I'm still learning as we all are. If you have comments about today's episode or any cycling and alignment episode, you can reach me via email. All that's required are the necessary keyboard mudras. In the two field, type in cycling in alignment at fastlabs.com and magically your message will appear. The response time may vary, but I'll do my best. In the meantime, please enjoy our episode. Thanks again for listening. Charlie Merrill. Welcome to Cycling in Alignment. Thank you so much for making time to come in today. Thank you, Colby, for having me. I'm very honored, grateful to be here. Let's begin by um, just having you talk a bit about yourself. Tell us who you are, where you came from, what your story is. How'd you get to where you, you are? get to start by talking about myself. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Just, let's just launch right into it. Let's. Um, geez. Well, I've been, a, I've been a physical therapist for um, 20 years. I guess I'll start with that. I've been through a lot of different settings over the course of that time, from workers' comp to Boulder Center for Sports Medicine to small private practice clinics. And so I've seen a lot of different um, versions of rehab, the good, the bad, and the ugly, I'd say. And at this point, um, I have my own practice. I decided I wanted to be a one-man show and be lean and agile and um, have the ability to sort of go where I wanted to go, not be beholden to the insurance system and really just be able to create a new product to, to support people better um, with pain and injuries. Yeah. And so 
um, we can talk more about that. But I guess when I left clinical practice, I realized I can't just do what everybody else is doing. You know, this has to be something different. This I almost can't be a physical therapist anymore because in Boulder, there are there are lots of good physical therapists. You know, doing great work. Um, and so that's been my sort of being a black sheep. That's been my guiding light with my practice is to say, how can I create something different that really helps people in a novel way? Um, with what they're dealing with. And so as a result, it's kind of a niche practice. I've been in Boulder for over 30 years. Um, I moved from the Washington, D.C. area where I grew up and came to college here, um, CU Boulder in 1992, got on the CU cycling team right away. That was when Tyler Hamilton was like like the big man on the team. It was a, kind of a really exciting time to, to be there. And then quickly realized that um, I wanted to be on the triathlon team instead, <laughs> so I migrated, did that for the okay. rest of my time at CU. Okay, but um, I was so excited to be in Colorado and to be in Boulder. That transition from the East Coast out here was just like a dream. Mm. Um, and yeah, so I, I got into grad school here. I got married, had kids, just like never left, you know. Nice. And I just, I just still love it here every day. Mm -hmm. Even just riding down here today, I just appreciate yeah. the people and the town, and I don't know. You got, cool. you got sucked into the bubble. I guess. We call it the bubble here in Boulder, in case you don't know that. Yeah. yeah. I, I love it. I think it's yeah. really special, mm -hmm. even though it's gotten busy and crowded and it's changed and evolved. And, you know, I yes. still, still think it's pretty cool. Like so many other places. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I have I have uh, three kids, um, you know, all like preteen, teenage age. Okay. Two of them going into high school. And um, I don't know. What else What else can I share? So you have three kids and you run your own business. So you're not really a busy guy at all. <laughs> no, it's, it's, yeah, it's wild. I mean, you know how it is. It's wild. You're just like have all these balls in there all the time. And I kind of like that. I kind of like being busy and I like mm. uh, novelty and change. And, and um, uh, so I've really enjoyed that. I think as an athlete, all, similarly, I really crave change and I crave novelty in my training. Mm. And that guides my clinical practice as well. And I think my, it's kind of reflected even in my kids about how they think about sport and how they think about movement um, that I really seek out like new challenges for myself all the time. Um, even you know, down to like riding, when I go out for a ride, I, I almost can't go do the same ride that yeah. I did the time before or even the time before that. Yeah. I just, I, I, to get motivated, I need to go do something totally different, mm -hmm. you know, different bike, different route different scenery and even putting the bike away for a little while and then yeah. I'll run and then I'll get into tennis and I'll start playing that a little bit. Okay. And so the variety for me has become much more important as I've gotten older too, rather than like being very focused, very specific to any one sport. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. On that theme, then you said clearly that you kind of left the traditional PT model what was your what was your big drive there? What were you finding with the limitations of PT, or or was it simply your own your own dissatisfaction with doing the same thing? You wanted something different, or was there something in the inherent in the system that you felt like had to change? You had to move on from. Mm, that's a great question. I think it was kind of both. You know, there were some some things that I wanted that I was unsatisfied with that I wanted to change uh, things about the system and like the day to day routine and the inflexibility um, with how practice was was going you know walking out of one room and then immediately walking right into another room um there's something impersonal about that kind but, of quick patient turnover that yeah sort of yeah and you're seeing enough patients some of the time like so many people that your head's spinning by the end of the day you don't even mm -hmm. remember your name mm -hmm. and so you realize you really can't do a great job for people sometimes in that model 
um, the, the volume was high, but then there's also the insurance limitations of, of, um, you know, how much clinics are being reimbursed and that affects how much time you have with people, how much time you have to get to know them, to problem solve with them, even to follow up, to really just do a good job mm. for folks. And over time, you know, reimbursement in, in our field, and I think in medicine in general has just consistently come down and down and down, cut, mm. cut, cut. And, um, so I was really frustrated by that and decided that I didn't, I didn't feel like I could practice that way anymore. It almost became intolerable. It wasn't even really a choice. Okay. It just like happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that change was quite scary when you decided to start your own business, Super. right? I mean, you're leaving effectively yeah. what is financially secure security in a job, stability, and you know, your spouse had to support you in that. You got, I don't know if you had kids at that point or yeah. you're planning to have kids already or oh, what. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, that's it a big intimidating. step. Yeah. yeah. So good for you. For, best decision ever. Tell us a little more about the specifics of the modalities you work with your clients with currently, you've got some of the things I saw on your site are joint manipulation, uh, dry needling, mind body therapy. You listed it as. I'd love for you to unpack that because I'm sure some of our listeners won't necessarily understand kind of what all these terms entail. Uh, fascial release. Um, so starting with joint manipulation, is that the same as chiropractic? Um, yeah, you know the chiropractic uh, clinicians will call it an adjustment. Yeah, um, it's basically a high velocity. We call it a grade grade five, like thrust manipulation. You're thinking that very fast, yeah. Um, low amplitude or uh, low amplitude thrust, where you get a click or mm -hmm. a release of of, um, of gas from the joint, mm -hmm. and that results in a reflexive relaxation of of muscle tension. Mm -hmm. And as people that have had adjustments or manipulation know, it works really well. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing in the research that the that the results of that are somewhat transient. Um, which is why a lot of times people get into this pattern of needing to go and, and be adjusted a lot. Yep. Um, partly because it feels really good. Yep. And, and partly because, um, yeah, any manual therapy, uh, in fact, most manual therapies that we're seeing now, the results tend to be transient. And mm. I think this is why over time I have, and a lot of clinicians are starting to move away from just looking at a strict body-based model where we're looking at everything biomechanically and we're relying just on manual therapies or body-based um, uh, tools yeah. to help people to feel better. And it's not to say those things don't help or aren't, aren't working. Um, it's just they can't they can't be the only thing that we rely on anymore. Mm. This the science is really uh, continues to take us in that direction, which I think is is an amazing opportunity. It's hard it's hard to believe like after 20 years in practice, you could still be evolving, learning new things, and completely excited about what you're doing you yeah know? i love that i i mean for me the human body is just endlessly fascinating and and the more i learn the more i realize i don't know absolutely it, not only in the world of my own exploration of the human body and all the nuance i mean as one of my teachers said in one of my check courses recently like you're solving the fractal so mm. the deeper you go the more you'll see the pattern in a fractal right it just it keeps emerging it keeps exploding it keeps progressing but Love there's that. always more minutia more detail so but also i'm constantly humbled by the other people that i meet in in the industry of human performance that know so much more than i do and then i start to absorb some of what they're teaching and then there's always more layers so on both the my own learning of the human body and exploration the diving in but then also the the amount of knowledge and understanding that the human race has already accumulated is just astounding astounding and then thank you internet like you're actually good for something it seems we can <laughs> access some of that <laughs> when you sit through all the bullshit right which yeah. 
is not uh, a trivial task. Yeah. I think like you too, Colby, I I, I love synthesizing things Mm. and taking knowledge from other areas and bringing it into my practice. That's something that just brings me a lot of joy. It's very exciting. Uh, I love paradigm shifts. I love when things just complete, your your understanding of things completely changes and you're forced to like let go of your old beliefs and Mm. start to learn about new beliefs. That stuff's really Mm. exciting um, to me over time. I think the complexity... Just to dive in here, the complexity comes from the fact that our brain is in charge. And so, as you said, there's no average person. No two people are the same. And we know that people's experiences are subjective and they're created by their their um, genetics and also by their environment and all their life experiences up to that moment. So whether it's how they relate to their fit on the bike mm-hmm. or um, how much pain they have or why they think they're in pain, you know, those things um, are different for every single person that walks in my door. Mm-hmm. And um, I talk when I teach a lot about this idea of the process being emergent or um, sort of de- developing over time. And if I walk into a, a session thinking that I know what's going on, thinking that I have the answer, yeah. because this person has, here's another person with lateral knee pain or with patellofemoral pain, um, I'm going to get it wrong most of the time. <laughs> That's right? a cognitive bias. Cognitive right? bias. You're, you're yeah. looking for a certain answer that you've already, you've already solved the equation, the end point. You're just filling in the X's and Y's and A's to get the result that you perceive is there. For sure. Yeah. It always gets me into trouble. Yeah. I'm sure you've had that experience too. Yeah. But starting with beginner's mind, um, I think is a really important part of any, any mm. problem solving practice. Um, and so um, when we talk about pain, when we talk about, I won't even use the word injury because we know from the science that pain and injury are not always the same. That you can have pain. In fact, most people have pain without any injury at all. Mm-hmm. But of course we learned over time that all of our um, pain must be caused by tissue damage, must be caused by a structural problem. That's the old model. And when I, when I was looking at things purely from a biomechanical perspective and problem solving, maybe like you, I'd collect a ton of data. And that made people feel safe. That made people feel like I was you know, doing a good, thorough job for them. Overturning all the stones. For sure. Yeah. yeah. And I think there's a lot of value in that to help people reduce fear. And it really gives you and I as clinicians um, a great starting point to be able to say, what do we really need to focus on? Um, but as I moved away from that, I'm realizing that because the brain is in charge, um, just relying on those biomechanical ideas wasn't helping everybody. It was helping yeah. some people, and it was helping other people maybe more temporarily. But I really wasn't able to support people as well as I wanted. And so now we have um, what in the science is called the biopsychosocial model of pain, mm. which is we're looking at the biology or the body, we're looking at the psychology of that individual, and then we're looking at their social realities, which we can dig into a little bit. Mm-hmm. Some people even take it to spiritual, mm-hmm. um, if that's appropriate for some people. And and so when we're trying to problem solve, we have to really consider all those moving parts. And that means that sometimes when you see somebody with biomechanical faults, um, and you right away jump to blaming that for why they're in pain, you're going to miss some things. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say that you don't treat those things some of the time, but it may be a red herring, you know, maybe a false positive. Right. And or get, maybe the outer layer of the onion. Is that a way to think possibly. about it? Possibly. Yeah. I think, I think about a lot of the physical changes I see in the body, honestly, more as the result of pain mm. and sometimes the result of psychology and the result of our belief systems. So we have the order backwards. I think we flip flip the script sometimes. Yeah. And so we can treat those things and we can consider those things as important. 
but they may not be the cause of what's driving the symptoms. Mm. I want to rewind just a bit, if you don't mind, and just briefly unpack when you're using the term biomechanical. I, I watched one of your YouTube videos recently. Charlie's got a whole truckload of great videos out there. So check them out. Uh, I think it's Merrill Performance on YouTube. Is that right? It might or be Merrill Perform Performance Boulder or M Performance Boulder. M Performance? Yeah. You'll find it. It's got a really cool graphic at the, at the beginning of the videos. So <laughs> you, you talk about the biomechanical model, sort of the traditional PT model, right? And just yeah. to frame this so listeners understand, what we're talking about is sort of the conventional way of assessing an athlete's perhaps posture or function during exercise. We'll look at the athlete and do an evaluation and we'll kind of determine from a PT's lens, okay, these muscles are short and tight. These muscles are long and weak, right? So the most, this is the most beautiful checkism ever. This analogy is like, it's just like truing a wheel. So if you have a really out of true wheel and you take it to the mechanic, right? What an out of true wheel has some spokes that are overly tight and some spokes that are overly loose. That's either because some of the spokes lost tension or because the rim got bent. Yeah. And when the rim gets bent to one side, it's going to tighten some spokes and loosen others. So if you take your wheel to the mechanic and you say, I want you to fix this wheel and he arbitrarily strengthens all the muscles, meaning tightens every spoke, does your wheel get more true? No, of course not. So this is the conventional PT model is you don't go to the gym and you and apply strength randomly or miscellaneously. First of all, most strength training methods wouldn't train all muscles the same anyway. But for the sake of the analogy, you understand what I'm getting at. Yeah. If we just went to the gym and strengthened all muscles, you know, every muscle, we broke each one down individually into a single joint exercise and we strengthened it. Well, that would cause problems because no human walks in the door a perfectly true wheel. We're all a little bit crooked, right? Yeah. A little bit. Some people more than others. Yeah. And likewise, the same could be said about flexibility. Flexibility would be the equivalent of loosening all the spokes and expecting the wheel to become true. But if you already have muscles that are long and weak, which is, again, a very uh, sophomoric, freshmanic perspective on PT, right? But yes. Yeah. No, it's good. I right? think it's accurate. I think it's how a lot of PTs think about Things. Yeah, and yeah, there's no, I'm, sure. not, I'm not bagging on this model at all. Like this is the first step, but it's yeah. it's one step of a million into the fractal. So you you have your layers of understanding. So yeah. is that fair to say? Like that's kind of what you mean when you say a biomechanical analysis yeah. of an athlete. I think it's a great metaphor too. The the idea of the wheel, and there are a lot of things uh, in what you just said that I could talk to. I think one of those is that um, you know we know that people are not per perfectly symmetrical that we grow like trees that we're organic mm. and we need to understand that some asymmetry some imbalance um, is normal yes and it doesn't in the science or in real life correlate with pain that well right. i have people that are totally scoliotic that you look at them and you're like this person How are you must be a mess yeah and they have no pain at all mm -hmm. people with massive bunions people with these like deformities structural deformities that that you'd think would be painful and they're not mm-hmm uh, people that are hyper flexible, you know, they're, they're way too loose or people that are way too stiff and they have yeah. no pain. So, okay. May I interject yeah. for just one yeah, second? Yeah. Have you studied Kit Laughlin much? Not much. I know the name. Okay. So he's an Australian guy. He's, his focus is, uh, flexibility and, um, stretching. He's got a lot of great stretching videos. His philosophy is he doesn't need to make a lot of money off this stuff. He just puts this amazing amount of content out there for free. So Kit Laughlin, that's L A U G H I N, I believe. Cool. And I heard an interesting lecture from him recently, and I wanted to bring it up because it touches on exactly what you were just saying. His point was, if you put a, a group of people in a room, a thousand people, whatever, and you you rate their flexibility, what most people tend to believe is that the people on the more flexible end of the spectrum, the Gumby end, are going to be less prone to injury. And the people on the brick, house brick end of the spectrum, as he puts it, are going to be more more 
more prone to injury and that that's the conventional line of thought. Why do we stretch to prevent yourself from getting hurt? But when you do that, uh, that statistical analysis, you actually look at the data, there's not a correlation there. The correlation is if people have significant asymmetries between left and right or anterior posterior flexibility measurements. So if your left hamstring is significantly less flexible than your right, or if your right interior hip rotation is way worse than your left, the chances of you getting injured are much higher. But it has nothing to do with where you are on the house brick to Gumby spectrum. Someone right. can be super gummied out, but it's the delta between left and right that gets them. For sure. It, it may actually affect which sports they're drawn to, right? Like someone that's really a Gumby might be more into rock climbing or yoga yeah. or dance. And someone that's way tighter may be more suited for running or weightlifting um, or football. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, yeah, we we don't we don't want to we don't want to make these false correlations between the the physical characteristics of people, the biomechanics, and pain because we always get into trouble. Whether it's like shoes or kids wearing backpacks or core strength, or I mm -hmm. mean the, the the list of things that we used to think were significantly important for pain is starting to to go away. Honestly, like a lot of those myths are starting to be debunked, which is wonderful. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I practice in a CrossFit gym. And I've treated a lot of professional CrossFitters. How many CrossFitters that have the most ripped, strong, hypertrophied abs, mm -hmm. developed abs, and still have back pain? But are they developed in the right way, or are they just a lot of them are to death? Right? A lot, a lot yeah. of them are developed in the right way. They're strong. Mm -hmm. They move okay. well. They're mobile. Okay. Um, especially the people at the professional level, mm -hmm. but they still have back pain. Yeah. And so um, it's not to say that abdominal strength isn't important for performance. And it's not to say that it's not something we should be working on for aesthetics. But either. there's not necessarily direct. We can't assume that there's a correlation, correlation. between how strong your abs are and how you're, uh, how yeah. resistant to back pain you're going to be. So, okay, that's a great point right there. I think we're drowning in all this amazing information that we get from the internet and people like Stu McGill, right? So Stu McGill, in case people don't know, is a guy who specializes in this exact paradigm that Charlie was just talking about, which is back pain and the relationship between core strength and reduction of back pain. His whole thing is, his whole shtick is about reduction of back pain through the proper use of the core. And he's got these exercises. I think he's got the McGill big three, or maybe it got expanded to the big four and depending on which article you look at. So what what's fundamentally happening here is we have people who fundamentally, I think these people are are committing a flaw of logic, I'll say, which is a big statement but they're expanding it slightly, but they're not seeing that it still doesn't reach everyone. What am I talking about? So <laughs> the, the logic flaw they're using is an instantial generalization. So Charlie, give us an example of something that you really like, whatever that is, a food. Chocolate. Charlie loves chocolate. Okay. Charlie's a male who lives in Boulder. <laughs> Therefore, all males in Boulder love chocolate. They have to because Charlie loves chocolate and Charlie's a male who lives in Boulder, right? So you see where I'm going with this. An instantial generalization means that, okay, let's make it slightly more scientific. You get the idea, but Charlie performed an experiment on himself and he found this amazing success with a certain supplement or a stretch that solved his own back pain. Or um, maybe you went skiing a bunch of times and you were really struggling on super double black runs until you started doing squats and deadlifts and then wham, your strength increased so much. Okay. Therefore, everyone who wants to improve their skiing performance needs to do squats and deadlifts. That's an instantial generalization, meaning you took one instance of success and you generalize it to everyone. 
what McGill's done, and I'm really not bagging on McGill. This guy's probably way smarter than I am and definitely more well-educated well educated than I am, but I'm just using him as an example. What he's done is he's taken his own model of core strength and he's applied it. He found some success with some people and said, I fixed their back pain. And they wrote papers and he gave lectures and he now has a program where he recommends that if you want to fix your back pain, this is what you do. Where this model gets defeated over and over again is the fractal. It's solving the fractal. Yeah. For every 100,000 or 1 million people you can send me whose McGill model works for, I will find another million whom for it does not. Yes. So this is the one of the trappings of living in 2020 is we can Google like, how do I fix my back pain? And you find McGill's big three or... Mm -hmm. Um, should I like chocolate? Oh, Charlie Merrill likes chocolate. I should like chocolate, whatever you want to find. Yeah. And you'll find someone who's an expert who's had great experience and great success applying this model of their system and fixing all these people. And that may or may not work for you. Yeah. And you can expand this to any modality of you can you can find fungal and parasite cleanses that work for some people and uh -huh. not others, right? On yeah. the list never ends. Yeah. So these are confounding variables in our quest for knowledge. For sure. You have people like Peter O'Sullivan, who's also out of Australia. Um, he's a physio and a researcher, also a really smart guy. And he'll, he has the opposite argument from Stu McGill. And he has some great YouTube videos online demystifying, debunking some of these myths that we have around back pain, mm. around core stability being important, around what's driving it, around the importance of radiology. Yeah. Um, it's, sometimes it feels like the whole paradigm is the whole biomechanical paradigm is falling apart in such a good way mm -hmm. because I mean, the reality is we're, we're in the middle of a chronic pain epidemic and not only that, but we have a lot of people that are also, uh, younger athletes that are, that are having acute pain that mm -hmm. will turn into chronic pain. So we have a situation where even though we have all this great knowledge and great science, when you really look at what's happening, you know, we have more people in pain, one in four, 25% in this country, that's more than cancer, heart disease, and diabetes combined. These are people that have had pain for more than six months, more than three to six months, depending on how you define it. And um, we have all this great information about core stability and it's not helping. It's not, wow. it's not working for people. So if you look at it from a meta, like a, like a big picture perspective, we're like, what are we missing? And I think what you were just describing is really important because the reason we see this phenomenon really comes down to belief. And because we know the brain is in charge, if you believe that Stu McGill is going to, his exercises are going to fix your back pain or, or help reduce your back pain, it probably will. There's a good chance it will. There's a good yeah. chance it will. Mm -hmm. um, if you've tried that and it didn't work and you find something else um, that you think is going to help your back pain, it probably will. The challenge is um, it'll only work for so long, typically, right. until you get to really what is the root of the problem, which for a lot of people is just fear. And as long as there's fear, you know, for instance, yes. you say, well, if I don't do my core stability every day, yes. and I don't stay on top of that and I fall off the wagon, I'm in trouble, right? right? That's just a belief system. That may not be true at all, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's why these things I think are temporary is because mm -hmm. they're, they're trends and they phase in and out. And um, yes. yeah, I mean, for some people, chocolate might help their back pain. Now we're getting somewhere. We're okay. starting talking about placebo and nocebo, and it gets yep. into this whole yep. conversation yep. about implicit bias. And it's fascinating then to say, well, you know, what do we need to do right. to help people, right, right, to right. support people? Yep. Okay. So where do you want to go from there? Man, so many directions <laughs> to go to go to go from from this point. I mean, belief systems, I I love to 
unpack that a bit and talk about how you've experienced some athletes who have had belief systems that have come into your practice. We're humans. We've all got them. Yeah. Right. I'm not above them. I'm not talking as though I'm one of the people who doesn't have them. I'm a human. Yeah. Therefore, I'm subject to them. them. For me, the, the method is to walk through the world consciously being attentive in the present moment and recognizing when your own belief systems arise and then critically examining them. Yes. And maybe at times you decide like this belief system's okay. I still like chocolate. It's a belief system, right? But recognizing that a belief system is a choice you are making. It's not an adherence to some absolute truth. Truth must be singular by definition. Mm -hmm. So if it's really true, that means one person can't believe it and another cannot. I'm talking about in a mathematical sense, a one plus one is two type of sense, Mm -hmm. right? So maybe you can unpack uh, a little bit more about belief systems and how they impact your practice, because I'm sure it sounds like you've got lots of clients who come to you and have had chronic pain. Yeah. They've been to PT. They've been to chiropractic. They've seen their doctor. They've had MRI scans and they're like, what's, why can't I figure this out? Like, why can't I move past this? You're having, you get the, the, you get the pile of broken toys. Somewhat. Although, you yeah. know, my, because I'm in Boulder, I, I do I do have a lot of people that just got hurt yesterday. And mm. this is why I'm so passionate about this work is because, you know, you look at like cleaning up the garbage patch in the ocean right now. That's a big project. That's cleaning up something that already happened. And the chronic pain epidemic is sort of, is sort of that way where we need to be helping people in a different way. Mm-hmm. But then there's the prevention, like how are we going to keep the plaster from getting in the ocean in the first place? And this is the opportunity where we look, we can look at acute pain, pain that just started um, through the same lens with the same model, which honestly isn't really being talked about in even, even the literature yet. Um, but we're missing an opportunity to shut this down before it becomes chronic mm-hmm. most of our people, because we know that, um, you know, a cyclist that just had knee pain that started yesterday because it's the spring and people are getting, you know, what we call spring knee, yep. um, they're attributing it always to something wrong with their body. Yep. And it may be something with their fit that they need to or adjust, yep. but it could also be the fact that, um, you know, they have some anxiety going into the season because all the races are canceled. It may mm-hmm. be because they have some conflict with their spouse. It may be because, um, uh, you know, they're not as stoked to go in and, and beat up on themselves like they were the year before. I mean, there are all these other mm-hmm. variables that we need to be considering even when pain starts at first mm-hmm. to be able to understand what, what, what is it for this person? What's the mix of variables that we really need to, to look at. Yeah. Um, and what I love about it is it's um, for some people, it's intimidating to think that their psychology is involved, but um, when people are open to it, it's such, such a fast way to uh, eliminate symptoms and not only that but to empower them in the future as athletes to be able to do it themselves and to not be so scared of it you know to not be so scared when their knee pain crops back up and you're just helping people understand a new belief system really so as someone who's been a pt for 20 years how are you um helping a client unpack their emotional attachment or their emotional contribution to their injury their fear are you are using eft tapping techniques are you using meditation? Are you hypnotizing your clients? Are you just smacking them on the side of the head with an iron pan? Like what's going on? Depends on the person. Okay. Sometimes the iron pan works well. Right. No, I mean, like you, I think I synthesize, I like to synthesize a lot of different things and it really depends on the person that's in front of me. Um, what strategy I use. Um, for some people it's as simple as identifying thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that cognitive behavioral therapy triangle that we see, you know, your thoughts create 
your feelings affect your behaviors. For instance, um, someone has a belief system that their bike is not fitting them well. You know, that thought may not be true, but if you carry that thought forward, it starts to affect how you feel about riding, starts to affect how you feel about the bike itself, starts to affect your race performance, it starts to affect your wattage. Yeah. Um, and then that leads to feelings. I would of, say it could erode your erode your confidence during hard efforts. Yes. Right? Would that for be sure. fair? Yeah. yeah. And then you're like, well, I'm not enough. My training isn't working. You start to get down on yourself. Mm -hmm. And you start to see how this triangle becomes a vicious cycle. And so for some people, it's identifying those thoughts, feelings, and behaviors that they have that are holding them back and saying, is this true? Is this really something? Is this thought true mm -hmm. or not? Can we let go of it. Yeah. Does that and make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then just to expand on that for a second, I'll, I'll follow that thought pattern if that's okay. And I want yeah, you to either shoot holes in it or develop it or okay, I'm ready. whatever. So, <laughs> all right, armed and ready. So if an athlete has, let's take our hypothetical athlete you just described, she's feeling that her bike fit isn't quite right. And so every time she gets on the bike and trains hard, does these, you know, rides, um, she's having a little bit of self-doubt during hard intervals, for, we'll say, you know, mm -hmm. and, and maybe it's not necessarily a conscious thing when, it, when the interval starts, but 15 minutes into that 20 minute threshold, when things get hard, this is what I love about the bike. Your personality always comes out, right? It's like the tiger's out of the cage or the, you, you always face the dragon when the efforts get hard enough. So we're talking three efforts in three by 20 and we're at effort, Ouch. you know, 52. Yeah. That's a hard workout for anybody. And, and even someone who's really fit, well-trained and she's, then she's going, oh, I don't have, I can't finish this last five minutes. You know, my power's not as good as it should be, mm -hmm. which is a, a should mm -hmm. I talk a lot about how I really don't like that word. Yeah. And and so then this cascade of biochemical reactions will be the result because when she walks through the door from that workout, she uploads her file. Maybe she touches, touches base with her coach and her coach gets back to her and says, okay, how'd it go? And they're going back and forth and she expresses disappointment and that sadness or that fear or anger right, or anger, however she's reacting will impact her, her recovery hormones, her cortisol levels, which have been Cortisol rises and sets with the sun if things are in sync. But if she rode for four hours and her cortisol levels are way up there when she walks in the door and then she's not relaxing, maybe she doesn't eat quite as well as she should. Mm -hmm. She's focused on the conversation with her client, her coach, so she's not hydrating as well as she should. Mm -hmm. And the cortisol levels stay inflated. Then she goes to bed at a normal time, but she can't quite fall asleep or deep sleep is impacted. Her REM's impacted. Mm -hmm. Now her recovery hormones are impacted. So she wakes up the next day, even though she was in bed for nine hours, why is my recovery score for my whoop only 18%? You know, I mean, yesterday was hard, but it wasn't that hard. It's a workout yeah. I've done several times. So that's how the emotional paradigm of this, this workout, this self-doubt can, can grow seeds that eventually manifest into actual physical symptoms. Because when cortisol levels are risen, are have risen and do not set with the sun and they impact recovery hormones, then your body can't repair itself. Yeah. And maybe her position isn't quite perfectly optimal, or maybe it's as simple as she's got a little bit of a, a power discrepancy between right and left, or she's got a little more medial rotation on the left knee. And so that lateral aspect of the left IT band gets a little inflamed sometimes, she gets a little patellar tracking problem. And sure enough, she didn't recover well from that three by 20. And then yeah. she goes out the next day and well, I have to ride six hours because I air quotes should. Right. And then walks in the door and ding, man, that left knee hurts a little bit. 
that's right. Yeah. Am I on the it's right a great, track? No, it's a, it's a great scenario. And, and right away, any athlete would blame their training or would blame the interval session from the day before. And of course that, that physical information from the body, we call that, we don't call it pain or symptoms at that point. It's just, it's, it's information going to the brain, mm -hmm. no susception or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. The brain's weighing that, but it's also weighing all these other psychological variables that you just described so well. And it, try, it has to make a decision about what to do with that. And the brain can cause any symptom it wants. It can cause swelling. It can cause redness. It can cause clicking. Mm. It can cause um, muscle tension. And it can cause Absolutely. pain. It can cause numbness, tingling. Mm -hmm. um, when the brain wants to get your attention, it's going to find a way to do it. And with, with athletes especially, the most effective way to get an athlete's attention is through pain in the mm -hmm. body. Mm -hmm. And it's going to go somewhere if you're a cyclist that gets your attention the most, which is probably gonna be your knees or your back or yeah. your hips. Yeah. If you're a runner, it might more likely go to your feet. Feet or if knees, If you right? play the violin, it might go to your hands. The brain is really yeah. sneaky, and yeah. if it wants to get your attention about something, it's gonna, it's gonna go there. But we're so quick to blame our training or our bike or our body being broken or damaged that mm. um, it, uh, it's, it's the default knee-jerk reaction. Right. And, yeah. and, and what you just described, you're missing all these, this other opportunity, not only to shut it down quickly, yes, but to then actually become a better athlete mm -hmm. in the future. If you start looking at the to right look, variables, to look at the variable, look inside and see what's happening. Yeah. Paul's got a beautiful expression for that. Um, that phenomenon of those little things, the body's telling you, he calls it the pain teacher, mm. the pain teacher's here, but the pain teacher is very persistent teacher, very persistent you you until you listen, get the message, until you get it. Until you pass the lesson, it will be repeated. You got it. Yeah. It's wonderful. You got, you got it. You got. You really have to look for the helpful message, and that's mm -hmm. what I do in my practice: is really help people um, try to understand and, and figure out what is the message. Yeah. And there are a lot of different tools we use to do that. With athletes, it's interesting because we look at symptom behavior. Um, you know, I, I teach with um, Dr. Howard Schubiner, who's a physician in Michigan, and he's the one that wrote the book "Unlearn Your Pain." He's one of the original mind-body clinicians that grew out of John Sarno's work, yes. which you probably read, "Healing Back Pain," and mm -hmm. some of the books. So when Howard and I teach together, um, he he always shares a ton of emails that he gets from people because he has so many people reaching out to him for help. These are mostly chronic pain cases, yeah. and just from their email. And the information they share about their symptom behavior, he can get a pretty good sense for whether this is a body problem or not. And that's his whole goal is to say, can we rule out the body, rule out a structural problem, mm. rule out a body problem, and then can we move on and start talking about the things that are really going to get you feeling better? And I actually brought some of these things, but there's a there's a mnemonic that we, we look at different pain behaviors that are functional, um, triggered, and inconsistent. And if we see even one of these symptom behaviors um, it starts to give us a sense for the fact that the brain is messing with us. Mm -hmm. And I can pass these over to you. But with athletes, it's things like I have no pain during my workout, mm -hmm. but then I have pain later in the day or the next day or three days later. And of course, we look back and say, oh, it must have been that interval session that I did. Mm -hmm. Or it must have been that bike fit that just doesn't feel quite right. Um, and which type of pain would this be? What It could be or, any pain. It could be any okay, pain okay. in the body, right? Okay. So let's say you're you have low, low back issues doesn't hurt on the bike it doesn't hurt on the bike you're like i feel great on the bike but as soon as i get off the bike i'm you know it hurts um another phenomenon where people wake up in the morning with symptoms mm -hmm. but then they get moving during the day and their workouts are they fine go away. yeah that's one you see people that sometimes go on vacation or they're doing something joyful they're distracted and their pain goes away and they come back from vacation and right and the pain comes back right super common mm -hmm. um you see a lot of athletes that get 
symptoms in the taper leading up to their event. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine all the psychological stresses that grow out of um, n- not only cutting back your training volume, which is hard for a lot of athletes anyway. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows how terrible the taper phase is. If the athlete is, <laughs> yeah, well, anyway, to get into psychology yeah. of athletics, yes, but right. Yeah, and then you also have all the pressure of the event coming up and the fear of what if I'm not enough. My whole season's gone into this, now yeah, I'm tapering. For sure, this I is put it. a lot of money. I have Time and effort. Of sacrifice. Yeah. Uh, you, you feel like you don't have a lot of control. Right. Like those things are so much more those reasons are so much more important reasons why people get symptoms leading up to their event than mm. because their training volume was high. Right. And helping an athlete understand that can really reduce fear um, if you can get them to shift their belief system about that phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, like we can even ask people over the phone, do your symptoms increase when you're thinking about them? Do they increase when you're stressed, mm-hmm. when you have a hard conversation with your spouse? Do you find that your symptoms spike? Those types of symptom behaviors point away from the body and yes. towards the brain as being in charge. And they're subtle. Mm. And we have ways to explain them biomechanically. I mean, I, I was really good at being able to explain everything biomechanically. Mm-hmm. But now I'm understanding, you know, in the last five or 10 years that it's not always helpful because it's not accurate. So interesting. You're... It sounds like your path is very parallel to Paul Checks in many ways because he went through, I guess, what we were referring to as the standard PT model for years and fixed a lot of people. And then he got to exactly where you're at or where you've been for a while, Mm -hmm. which is the layer of this isn't solving all the problems. It's solving maybe 90% of my clients that I see. But now I'm getting this 10% where we check all those boxes. We, We shorten the the we strengthen and shorten the long, loose muscles, et cetera. And we go through that model. And they still have pain and we can't explain it. And then they have to look at the psycho-emotional component. And yeah. I like to phrase that as this is something that it constantly surprises me a bit when I have to explain this to some of my clients. Because to me, it comes as self-evident. But we don't – an athlete doesn't just get on the bike and all their life stress doesn't just evaporate. We are psycho-emotional creatures. We are integrative. Like all of our life experience – Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you were riding here to this podcast and you came within millimeters of getting hit by a huge truck, that would obviously stress you out, right? It would impact you and you would carry the load of that stress. And probably when you got here, the first thing you'd say is, oh my God, you guys, this is what happened to me. I can't believe it. You know, that's the way humans work. It's a normal thing. So we don't just swing our legs over the top tube and drop everything. You don't walk through the door of a gym and forget about the fight you had last night with your wife over a $20,000 credit card bill or, you know, what, whether you can't agree on what to feed your children for lunch, right? Yeah. yeah. Or whatever it is that couples fight about or disagree about. Yeah. Or whatever other stress, you just know, those your, normal life stresses, those normal right? life stresses that we all have. We all have them. All and the, the more time. decades you have in life, the more of those we kind of accumulate because we have more responsibility, more mortgages and car payments or lawn care or what kids and yeah. doctor's appointments and yeah. soccer and everything else that we've got to juggle or choose to juggle. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm going to go live in a cave next week, by the way. <laughs> so <laughs> my family's coming with me. Don't worry. So it all those things are are additive. And we can't we, – we all want to believe that we are supermen and supermen and that we just – throw a leg over the top tube and can go ride up super flagstaff or whatever your local Strava climb is and smash people or go sign up for your criterium and forget about all that stress. And yes, 
maybe a confounding variable in that equation is, well, sometimes when I'm really stressed out, I go smash myself for four hours and I feel great. Yeah. Yes. That's called escapism. Uh huh. That's not true therapy. It's not meditative. It's not looking in. It's not it's, intentional. Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. For Usually people, not. I, I've, I've known some athletes who intentionally are like, I can't deal with this. I'm going around. I, I need to go burn off some anger or whatever. And they go, and then they're so bludgeoned by the effort and so thwacked with cortisol, you know, <laughs> their eyeballs are swimming in it, but they come home and then their wife is yelling at them and they're kind of like, what? It's like Fight Club in the scene where, you know, they're like, everybody's voice, just the volume gets turned down by about half. <laughs> you just don't care because <laughs> you're smashed. That's Not awesome. Not really the best way to walk through life. I mean, you can also take quaaludes and bumble your way through life too. For sure. I, I mean, I, I personally used, used sports and cycling and running and other sports as a way to, as a way to numb out. I mean, it's a great, it's a great strategy and you could argue it's more healthy than drugs and alcohol. You, you could. You can make you that argument. Yes. But but I know like when I was first Until getting you get injured. Yeah, and, for sure. Right. Yeah. You start having pain. Right. Um and and I, you know, I there was a time when I was using exercise as a way to distract me from the other things in my life. It was a coping mechanism. For sure. And what I noticed is that over time it started to take the joy out of that thing. I, I mm. one thing I, I loved at one point started to become um less fun. I just, I just wasn't thriving doing it. So I, I mm -hmm. literally had to put it away for a little while. Yeah. And in being in Boulder, I see a lot of athletes in all different sports that are using it for that reason. They're not, they're not using it intentionally to identify their big feelings, their emotions, and then to use it to process those emotions. Like you said, some people do, and it's a great way to do that. Yes. Movement is. But if it's your only strategy, which I also see in a lot of athletes, yeah. um, you're going to really struggle to um, make it make it a healthy balance, right? And so things like meditation and mm -hmm. you know other out, I think other outlets are important. Mm -hmm. Like coming home and talking to your spouse about what's going on in your relationship <laughs> is important. Yes. You just can't go out and ride it off all the time. Yep. Um, but I think a lot of a lot of a lot of mm. athletes do that. I mean, we're all athletes are driven people. They're high achieving. They expect a lot of themselves. Um, they're driven usually in their career as well. Yeah. And um, there's a personality type, especially oh, that gets absolutely. into racing, yes. you know, gets into doing it at, a, at a high, mm. anything at a high level. You have a certain personality type. And there's a whole list of personality types, by the way, with pain that we look at to help us um, mm. understand what behaviors and uh, even thoughts and feelings people are going to have yeah. uh, in their lives that maybe set them up to have a more sensitive nervous system, a more sensitive brain that's going to more habitually mm. produce symptoms. And a lot for a lot of people, it'll even keep producing the same symptom. You see these patterns that develop of people say, well, I had this knee injury three years ago, and now it comes back like every six months. That's usually the brain doing that. It's become a conditioned response, and there's usually a pattern and some psychological trigger that lights that neural pathway from the brain back up again. Yes. But the first thing it does is cause fear. And ah, my knee's injured again, or it's wearing out, or I'm getting old, or all these stories that we tell ourselves, or that bike fit wasn't good. You know, it was not the right bike, but I have to go back and get another bike fit because my knee's hurting again. When when you start to understand what's going on, you know, it's the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain, like pulling the levers. Um, you you as an athlete have a great tool to be able to do do things yourself mm. and and not get hung up by injury. Okay, so maybe we have some listeners now who are thinking, ah. Uh crap, this is me. I'm that person who's had that recurring knee injury 
I like I like to normalize this for people, right? Like we're all that person. Of course. Almost without yeah. exception. Like mm-hmm. we all we all um all of our brains do this. Mm. And so I don't like to make it um certain people or people that are sensitive or people that have a you know it's important for people to know that it's not even that even though your brain is in charge of all of your pain 100% of the time, we know this now from the science, pain is not all in your head. And anyone that tells you that is cruel. You're not saying or, it's psychosomatic or you're just inventing it. Pain is real. It's not made up. All pain right. is real. All pain plays out in the body, but all pain is driven by the brain. And once you understand that shift, it totally changes the way you relate mm-hmm. to it. Completely changes it. Yes. So, okay, so let's say you are that athlete who's got this recurring pattern of, of pain and maybe the pain comes and goes, maybe it goes from different parts of your body and you're always looking under these stones trying to figure it out because if you're active and you want to ride your bike or you want to do whatever you want to do, play tennis or climb rocks or or just be healthy, yeah, um, you want to find out what the root cause of this is, not just treat it with Band-Aids, right? So you're you're... You've been looking at your bike fit or you've been looking at your shoes you're choosing for your running or maybe you're doing more stretching or maybe you've seen PTs, et cetera. You've gone down this road. Now you're you're inspired to hear Charlie talk and say, okay, what can I do? Let's do you have some actionable advice? Like what what's the big picture? How does an athlete who wants to take the next step start to dig into this? What are the life changes they can consider? What are the what are the strategies that they can consider? Yeah. yeah. I think that's a that's a big question. Um, I could talk kind of at length about that. So maybe you have to reel me in a little bit. Um, I think just before I launch into that, um, Guy Winch, who's a psychologist, did a great TED Talk um, about emotional first aid. And the, the point he makes in there that I love is that we sustain more psychological injuries every day than we do physical injuries. They're happening all the time, right? We're feeling judged at work. We're not performing well enough. Our boss is hard on us. We're having conflict with our kids. I mean, these are just normal life stresses. And the, the, the point he makes at the end is that unlike our bodies where we have a lot of strategies to, to solve the problem, if we get a cut in our knee, we can put a Band-Aid on there, right? We know how to do that. We've been taught that since we were young. We really don't have a lot of psychological strategies to be able to support ourselves, help ourselves, or even help others when we are going through stressful times in our lives. Mm. Um, so the the psychoeducation, I think, is one of the most important pieces of the puzzle. I mean, I, most people read John Sarno's first book, Healing Back Pain, and just because they understood what was going on, their back pain got better. Right. And so as clinicians, our job is to learn how to, is to help psychoeducate people so they can understand what's happening and to help them reduce fear as much as we can. And that is an art as much as it is a science, because again, everybody needs a different nugget of information to help them, um, depending on what's coming up. So a thorough exam is always important. You know, from the subjective history, you can get a really good idea um, about how people tell their story, what they think is going on in their body or with mm-hmm. their bike or with their biomechanics. It gives you a good starting point. You can okay. start to, to educate people. Um, for a lot of people, that's enough. Mm. Just understanding what's going on and then it's not scary is enough. And they start to see, oh, wow, I feel better mm-hmm. for the first time in a long time. Mm. Um, shifting belief system, that belief system for others is harder. And um, sometimes it happens over time. You need to plant seeds and you need to sort of chip away at that belief system and help people um, collect evidence over time 
so they so they can see for themselves that that that's really what's going on for them. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of resistance in athletes that are even in myself. I mean, I had to unlearn a ton, thousands of hours of continuing education training that I consumed that I had to start to unlearn um, as I shifted my own belief system to deprogram. Ooh, yeah, right. It was a lot of that, and so yeah. I think that's the first step. Um, you know, defearing movement is the second step. You know. Um, giving people permission that they don't have to shut down cycling. They don't have to stop. Defearing. So you mean? Just because they're in pain. If someone's okay. in pain or has symptoms, you know, we tend to, to, to shut things down and pull the mm-hmm. plug. Mm-hmm. And um, when people have done that for a while, they have deconditioning and they have all of these physical changes that, you know, you, you and I can work on to help people get healthier and help to improve their performance and their overall fitness. Mm-hmm. Even if that stuff doesn't correlate directly with pain, it's important to address because we know that movement is almost always better than not moving. Right. Right. Stopping cycling. And so many of your listeners are going to have had this experience. I stopped cycling for two months and the pain got worse. Right. You know, I tried, I tested, I got back on the bike and yeah. So, so through graded exposure, we have to get people back on the bike. We have to get people back running. We have to get them moving again and give them permission. And you can only do that by helping them understand psychoeducating about the fact that they're safe. Okay. Right, that they're not in danger. That that MRI scan or what the doctor told them um, isn't necessarily the whole story. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah. That's step number two. Okay. If I'm su- trying to summarize here, step yeah. num- step number three um, would be called somatic tracking or um, um, sort of uh, pain reprocessing therapy is another word that you see thrown around a lot, and this is. Um, helping people when they have symptoms to relate to them in a new way. There's sort of a guided meditation process of when symptoms come on, you're helping people watch the symptoms with curiosity instead of letting it be in the background and drive fear and drive all these other negative behaviors. And you're encouraging them to watch the symptoms with curiosity and just notice what happens to them. They might mm. get worse. They might get better. You're not attached to any specific outcome, mm. but you're trying to catch your brain in the act yes. and collect data to prove that you're safe again. This is all sort of fear reduction, right? It this sounds like just reducing yeah. fear. Yeah. And ultimately, you for a lot of people, you want to get them to the point where they don't give a shit that they have pain anymore. It doesn't matter mm-hmm. because the symptoms are no longer dangerous. We know they're being driven by the brain. We know that the the major trigger is something psychological or social tied to some belief system. Um, And and as a result, it doesn't matter that you have pain because your body's safe. And that process is really interesting because, um, yeah, we have it. We carry a lot of fear. And we Mm -hmm. catastrophize when we have pain that something's wrong with us. What a great word. It's universal. It's normal. I mean, and athletes do it the most because they're like, oh, oh, crap, like I can't ride now. What does this mean? Season's done. Racing's done. I'm behind. Right. That that constant athlete mindset of if my TSS drops or if I lose four watts on my threshold, how am I going to gain 12? Yep. Yep. Yeah. So helping people to to work through um, their fear around their pain is important. And then the last step is more around emotional processing. And it's starting to identify what are the psychological or social stressors that are really key for this for this person for this athlete. Let's identify those. Let's explore where they come from. Um, sort of investigate what's going on. Um, for a lot of people, it's really easy because when the when their symptoms came on, and I would say, Colby, like nine out of ten 
athletes that walk in my door have no obvious reason that their pain started. There was no crash. There was no overtraining. There was no like obvious trigger for their symptoms. It just started one day. Interesting. And they can usually sort of piece together. Maybe it was this, maybe it was that. I haven't been stretching. Yeah. You know, I got a new saddle. <laughs> I got mm -hmm. new pedals, whatever. Mm -hmm. They can maybe make up something. But um, if you start to ask questions, you'll see that usually there's some stressful life event going on. And so mm -hmm. when you can identify that, then you can explore it and you can um, ask people what the emotions are. And this is where it's so hard. Yeah for people to open up and talk about and think about and process their emotions. It's really difficult for all of us. Um, it's not a skill that we learned when we were young. And in fact, a lot of us were told that emotions aren't safe and we shouldn't express them. Especially, we should keep them to ourselves. Especially men in Western society. Absolutely. Feelings are meant to be felt, not spoken. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And athletes are tough. You know, we're, we're like, I'm tough. I'm resilient. I can handle it. Right. I can handle anything. And man, when you start like really looking at the emotions and starting to process anger, sadness, grief, guilt, yeah. um, there, there's so much just amazing stuff that you learn about yourself and you get back on your bike and you get to race again. I and mean, then you, yep. And you, and you, and you, you've cut off this neural pathway, this pattern mm -hmm. at the knees. It's, mm -hmm. it's done. It's gone. You've unlearned it. Mm. So really, it sounds like you're saying that what you've, you're teaching a lot of your athletes, your, your injured athletes who walk through your door is that they are injured, but the acute trauma wasn't necessarily physical. The acute trauma could have been emotional. The acute trauma could have been otherwise impacted and in a way because we think of trauma as being physical. We think of yeah. hitting the ground when you crash in a crit yeah. or being in a car accident or yeah. bonking your knee on a coffee table or dropping a weight on your foot, but it's not necessarily the way it works. You can have an emotional trauma as well and you just may not have registered it. What? How did you get this pain? Oh, I have no idea. Yeah. What happened? Oh, well, a year ago I broke up with my girlfriend and we'd been dating for five years and we were on the verge of getting married and we couldn't agree over whatever or, you know. Yep. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up, this difference between injury and pain. Because I, I see sort of um, a, a number of different categories. You have the athlete that got injured. They had a real injury. They had surgery. They broke something. They tore their ACL, right? And they went through the rehab and um, they healed. But then three years later, they're still in pain. Or five years later, the symptoms come back, right? And it's, it's very unlikely that they're injured at that point. Right. But they have pain. Right. You have other people that never had an injury at all, and they have pain. Mm-hmm. And there's a psychological, you know, piece to that. Sometimes it's fear of the pain itself. Sometimes it's emotion or fear about other things in life, as you just mentioned. Okay. Um, but um, oftentimes people have old injuries that crop back up that they blame on their body. Mm -hmm. They're no longer their body. And I think at the end of the day, um, w one of the things I really help people understand and athletes understand is that our bodies heal. It's the one way they're different from a wheel with different tension spokes or yeah. from the like car, the machine metaphor that a lot of people use that, you know, we're not like cars. We heal, our bodies heal amazingly well. Oh, the, bur the body is the perfect healing machine. Unbelievable, yeah. right? And yeah. it heals in this really predictable way where depending on the tissue, you know, if it's muscle, it's gonna be a couple weeks. If it's a tendon, it might be six to eight weeks. If it's a ligament, it might be 10 to 12. Mm -hmm. um, if you've had surgery, you know, you're looking at this this much time. Once that time has passed, your body's done. It's mm -hmm. done an amazing job and you can trust that. Mm -hmm. And so if pain comes back, you need to start looking at other things. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So to rewind for just a moment, you talked about your four different steps that you might administer to 
to treat an athlete who walks through the door with pain. Step three, remind me what how you titled that. Uh, step three, we'll go in order. Step one would be like the psychoeducation, yep. helping people understand um, pain neuroscience education is how my PT colleagues talk about it. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of great information out there about pain science. Step two would be um, graded exposure, helping people get active again, get moving, yes. reducing fear. It could be graded exposure around movement and getting back on the bike, um, mm-hmm. or it could be graded exposure about um, feeling emotions or being exposed to, to new things. Like I haven't been climbing, I haven't been at Flagstaff for two years. How am I going to, you know, deal with the emotions around that? But um, also, how am I going to deal with the physical stresses of, of doing yeah. that again? Yeah. Right. Okay. So there's graded exposure to both the emotional and the physical. Step three would be somatic tracking or pain reprocessing therapy, yes. which is helping to people to relate to their symptoms in a new way mm-hmm. where they're not scared of it anymore. And that looks different for different people. Yep. S- um, step four would be emotional processing. So did you have yeah, a, yeah, yeah. a question yeah. about step three That's, specifically? Well, kind of an observation, which is that it just immediately reminded me of some of the meditation practices that I've played with and tried and and had some of my clients try as well. And I think meditation is something that for some people, it's a bit of a, a nebulous concept. For some people, it's a bit of a, just a weird woo thing, you know, and it's they don't want to do it too spiritual. Right. Yeah. Um, and no word is off limits in this room, uh, except the ones that shall not be spoken, but <laughs> whatever that means. Uh, so, but Spiritual is definitely not off limits in my world and meditation is definitely not off limits in my world. It's something I do daily. Uh, I just came from a Tai Chi Chi session on the way here. But one of the core principles of many meditation techniques, including those taught by Sam Harris and a guy that I've studied a bit, Michael Holt, they talk about observing the emotion, like just as you were saying. So observing your response to something and Michael, in particular, he has taught under a, a meditation teacher uh, whose name is Shinzing Young, and he teaches a, a technique that where the the observer, the meditator, observes themselves having thoughts and they label the thoughts, right? And this is what Paul would call name it, tame it, and blame it. Love it, right? Love that. So simple. So Paul has these really simple, actionable things that you can hopefully remember, you know, and frequently they have mnemonics to them. So they're, you can remember them when you're in the moment of stress or whatever and go, ah, I'm going to do this. But Michael's technique or Shinzen Young's technique is you name your thoughts or really you name, you, you classify them. So if you see something in your mind, whether your eyes are closed, or if you see something with your eyes, if your eyes are open, if you're meditating with your eyes open, you see something, you just label it, see. If you feel something, you feel. If you're, if you have a thought in your head and it plays out as language, verbal language, you hear, and you just rotate through that. Sam Harris would describe a similar concept in his meditation where he talks about, this is a really weird one, is seeing the back of your face. So you're visualizing that your mind doesn't actually occupy the space behind your eyeballs in your skull. Your mind is wherever you decide it is. So when you place distance between the back of your face, you realize that your mind can exist in some sense outside of that physical space that helps you observe your own behaviors, your own patterns. Mm -hmm. So then when you observe your pain, then it becomes inherently an other and the other becomes neutral to some degree. And this is what I like to term or phrase shattering of the Disney paradigm, Mm -hmm. right? So the Disney paradigm is when your six-year-old is watching a movie and a Disney movie and they, they don't quite understand the plot. Is this, and they ask you, dad, is this a good guy or a bad guy? 
because in a six-year-old mind, everything is good or bad. It's, it's dualistic. Polarized. It's dualistic. Yep. It's uh -huh. black or white. Yeah. Yin or yang. And and we carry a lot of those belief systems into our adult lives. And pain is bad. And there's this sub story that someone told me recently. I've got to look this up and recite it at some point down the road. But something like the farmer has the farm and then one day the cow dies and the neighbor comes over and says, oh, your cow died. Isn't that bad? And then something good comes from that, you know, and then something bad happens. The farmer from that says thing. maybe. Yeah, exactly. Basically. Exactly. That's it. The, basically, the farmer says, well, maybe, maybe not. We'll right. see. And then yeah. the story goes, you know, good thing, you know, what we would assign is trivially good things and bad things happen over and over and over again. And but each one of those turns the tide towards something that actually helps the farm succeed and prosper and yeah. then takes away from that prosperity. And it sort of yeah. goes back and forth. And when you look at it through a big enough macro lens, you see that there really isn't a good or bad per se. I mean, yeah, if you fall off your bike and break your femur initially that's oh this sucks this is bad news but yeah. what how do you grow out of that experience like yeah. uh, there's that book you know broken open i mean this is these are the transformative events in our lives that make us better people for sure i'm, glad, is, I'm glad you i'm glad you said that a couple points i want to make there one is um when you were first talking about meditation it's this idea of not attaching to your pain your pain is not who you are right and also realizing um, so, so by by labeling it, what you were saying, you're labeling it as something that's neutral or something that's just a normal process. It's hearing, it's seeing, it's feeling. Yep. Um, so you're you're it's a great strategy, um, but you're also uh, working with it to show your to prove to yourself that it's transient, that it's not permanent, yes. that the brain is changing every second, mm. and that um, because of that plasticity, we can trust and we can expect that that can change. We're not talking about coping anymore. We're not talking about coping with symptoms. We're yeah, talking about curing symptoms. Yeah, We're not right. talking about living with it. We're talking about curing it mm -hmm. through this process of detaching from it. Um, the, the, the other point you made that I love is that pain is all, or symptoms are, are always a gift. Even if they've been there for many years, they've been trying to tell us something. We just haven't been listening. We haven't received the message yet. The pain you said before. Yeah. With athletes, I think it's amazing because you've heard stories of athletes having an injury and then taking a year off and then coming back and just crushing. They have fire. Mm -hmm. They're excited to train. They may have been in a plateau and that injury was exactly what they needed to give them a break to yep. come back. You know, you've seen it with, with Roger Federer in tennis. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you can list the number of athletes probably that have had an injury that set them back that ended up being the best thing to happen to their career. Mm -hmm. And I love those stories. And what's, what's interesting is we're all in the middle of one right now. This pandemic has set us up so that, you know, a lot of people can't rock climb. Right. You know, we can ride right now in Boulder, but a lot of people aren't doing those things. Yeah. And they're missing them. Yeah. So it's almost like Mother Nature gave us an injury to force us to reassess and to take a break and to circle back and come back with some new fire, some fire new motivation. So I think yeah. there are going to be some amazing performances, mm. some amazing um, uh, athletic performances that come out of this. I feel really strongly I, about yeah. it. I was saying this on the podcast with uh, Dr. Alan Lim the other day that I think the fall for racing, I don't, I don't actually watch a lot of professional cycling. I've been a pro too long to watch <laughs> that much of it. I, I do at times and there are things I find interesting about it. And if one of my athletes is racing a race, then I, I watch it. But this fall is going to be quite interesting because we've had this massive disruption to the normal flow and rhythm of the season. And teams are going to be quite challenged, I think, professional teams, because they used to pick, cherry pick their, their best riders for particular races, whether it was a grand tour or particular classics. And they also would cherry pick their best staff 
And with exception of about three teams, that's really going to stretch them thin because they're going to be running double and quadruple programs, double, triple, quadruple programs all fall mm. to catch up. And that mm. means the best staff are going to be dispersed. Directors, mechanics, swaneurs, everyone's going to be stretched thin. So the riders are going to have to pick and choose. It's going to be actually some pretty interesting bike racing. But And I, I also agree with what you're saying. There's going to be a lot of athletes who are just ripping fast because they're so fired up after being kind of feeling pent up mm-hmm. all spring. There are probably other athletes who are going to be smashed because they rode several 12-hour rides on Zwift or whatever they did. I don't know. Yeah. Everest did nine times. They, they didn't give themselves permission to, to slow down. To slow down or, and regroup. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that was it. Or or maybe, yeah, the rhythm, their rhythm will just simply be mistimed compared mm-hmm. to what a normal season would be. I mean, I think there are athletes who historically tend to go well in June. There are athletes who historically mm-hmm. go well in September. Well, if right. you're a person who goes well in April and May... This may not be your best season, <laughs> yeah. But who knows? We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. But we'll see. I mean, you know, if we have an injury, you know, I've had plenty of traumatic injuries: ankle sprains, fractures, you know, broken bones from crashing racing. Um, they often happen when I I, I kind of needed a break. They often happen. I don't want to say my brain threw me under the bus necessarily. Yep. But the timing is never a mystery. And mm-hmm. usually I don't realize that until later and I look back and I say, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense why, you know, I was overtrained, I was putting too much pressure on myself, I wasn't having fun. Yep. And that injury happened at, at just the right time. Mm. And um, yeah. what a gift. And this is such the athlete's paradigm of confounding variables, right? Because while things have been refined over the years of training and sports training and sports science, and conditioning, there's still some archaic beliefs that hang up athletes. And what I'm getting at is that there's the traditional, like think about Trevor, for example, he's so Canadian and they're all about being tough and going out and riding in the cold and having your hands freeze and, you know, having other body parts freeze and whatever. And that's just part of the sport. And there used to be a very tough man attitude about cycling. In fact, this would be a great segue into the 94 Paris-Roubaix, which you <laughs> mentioned in an email. And I went and had to go watch part of this morning to refresh my memory. And it was such a vintage level era race. I mean, oh, so good. Hair nuts and no helmets and Phil Liggett <laughs> and the whole bit. So, okay. During that era, when people trained early season, they didn't necessarily separate different types of discomfort or pain. It was all just pain and it all made you tougher. Now, whether that pain was your nuts fell asleep every ride you did because your saddle was an absolute train wreck or whether that was your feet hurt like hell because you got new shoes every spring and you basically just, you picked a shoe that was as small as possible so that it could be as efficient as possible and you jammed that foot in there and then it was leather so it kind of stretched. And then you had this battle between your foot and the shoe and we don't know who won. Actually, we do (laughs) know who won. So, and then all these types of pain versus the type of pain that is ostensibly constructive in exercise. Like you go ride your bike for five hours, your legs should hurt, right? That's a lot of work on a bike. Yep. Your lungs might be a bit Your scorched. back might hurt. Your, your neck might, might hurt, be hurt. Your brain saying, dude, season. that's enough. Yeah. But, but <laughs> yeah. because you're an athlete and you are a, in, in Chinese medicine, maybe a wood type, right? A very action-oriented person who's just going to go and do things and be decisive and is always on the move, right? Or you're a type A personality like we talked about. That type of, of go get him athlete who wants to really um, achieve. And so you're going to, you're going to punch right through that pain. That's what an athlete does. That's yeah. their onus. That's their mission yeah. is to prove how tough they are, how tough this man or woman is. So we do that 
But now we're starting to figure out like, you know what? Saddle technology has been taking huge leaps forward, yeah. massive leaps forward. Massive. You don't have to have genitals that fall asleep on every three hour bike ride now. You can do a three hour bike ride and just focus on the leg pain and the lung pain <laughs> and maybe some lower back pain, but hopefully not depending. But even there, there it gets really nuanced. Yeah. Is it just my back muscles catching up with the strength, the demands that I'm giving them on the bike because I haven't ridden much? Or is it that my position's actually not quite right or am I carrying psycho-emotional pain? Into or has my... it become a conditioned response where now my bike, my brain has correlated my bike with my back pain? And exactly. you see this yes. a lot where yeah. your brain just now has, has linked those two together mm-hmm. until you decide to un- or understand how to unlink them. Yeah. 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 That cool. Conditioned response is a really interesting. It's a common one. Yeah. But, and... but I think you were going, I, I don't mean to interrupt you. I think you were going somewhere with that thought. Well, at this point, I just want to know why you brought up the 94 pair. I want to hear what you had to say about it. <laughs> Let's go back to that because yeah. that's super interesting. You know, yeah. it's funny. Like I had I had a RockShox poster when I was in college. Mm-hmm. And that was, I think, the first year that um, they were putting these RockShox that were built for road bikes. Oh, I looked this on up bikes on the video. This is great. Yes. At the, at the Paris-Roubaix. And I don't think it lasted very long. Yeah. But this was like early in the in the the, the phase of, of the development of RockShox. Anyway, I had a poster on my wall and it was a picture, a picture of Andre Schmidt. Who, mm-hmm. um, event who won the race that year rode away with it, and it was one of the messiest, like deep water in the cobbles, muddy. It just looked miserable, and yep. his face was covered in mud. Everything on him his, was covered with mud. His face just looked like the, the a Russian guy you'd expect a Russian guy's face. It's so hard, and just so much suffering. And on this poster, there was a Dostoevsky quote that said, "Man is." Um, extraordinarily passionately in love with suffering. And it's just like, it's Uh it's like burned in my brain now. I just, that image to me speaks volumes about what drives athletes. And I think it really was Mm -hmm. something that I um, admired. And I was like, look, look at how tough this guy is. Look at how tough these people are that they can do this. And so as an athlete, I I sought those things out. They gave me confidence. They improved my self-esteem. You know, you could go into this long list of, um, things that they did for me, you know, I mean, I think athletes have this confidence about them that helps them in business. It helps them in, in lots of areas of their lives. But that, you know, I, you realize those things are uh, things that we choose, right? That type of pain, that type of suffering, that type of discomfort ultimately is something that we're choosing to do. Yes. And as a result, we can tolerate it better. And we, we it, it lives in a different part of our brain. Mm-hmm. Whereas when we have other symptoms like back pain or neck pain or whatever, um, we're not choosing that necessarily. We don't know what's going to end. It doesn't we, appear to be finite. Doesn't appear to be finite. There's not a there's not the finish line on the velodrome, <laughs> right? That's that's right. in the in the in the distance or the and, top of the mountain or whatever. So yeah. it's way scarier. And mm. we can be the toughest person on the bike, and people get this mixed up sometimes. Well, I'm super tough. I'm hard as nails. Um, you know, the, the, this pain. You know. The, why do I have Why do I have so much pain? You know, why is this holding me back so much? Um, yeah, it's totally different. You're yeah. not You're not choosing it. You don't know when it's going to go away, as you said, and um, and it's scary. And just as a segue on that, a side note. Correct me if I'm wrong here, Charlie. Maybe you've read more on this than I have, but my understanding is that women, the pain tolerance for women, is way higher than it is for men. Guys, I'm going to clue you in here in case you don't know this, but. If a man's nervous system was subject to the same amount of pain a woman goes through when she gives birth, the average man would die from the pain. Yes, literally, I die. that's true. Yeah, and of so, course, you know, she she's also making a choice to go through that, which I think probably is helpful in some way. But 
the yeah right the, and and it does have an end well it hopefully does. <laughs> but but there's also a lot of unknown in that process and there's a lot of fear in that process of mm. i don't know how long this is going to take it'd be like right. going into pre-roubaix and it could either last an hour or it could last, could last three 42. days yeah exactly you know like yeah. how terrifying would that be it'd be a totally a different deal that's a good point um and so they're dealing with a lot of unknowns and a lot of fear around you know the physical side effects yes of all that and of course all the emotions around having a kid yeah um wrapped into that as well you know you look at the this from a biopsychosocial model, mm -hmm. and suddenly you're not just dealing with physical pain. Right. You're also dealing with lots of other, you know, self-doubt and fear and will I be a good enough parent? I mean, men go through this as well. But yeah, I think men would all die. We would yeah. all we would all die. We would all die. You guys are really tough, but you're nowhere near as tough as they are. Nowhere near as tough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for sure. the next time your sister, mom, wife, girlfriend complains about their shoulder hurting a little bit, pay attention because that's probably tenfold what you'd be dealing with. Yeah, for sure. Um, but, okay, so I made, I had to watch this Paris-Roubaix video of Andre Chamil winning. He was solo from about 45 or 50K out, I think. It was a really long way, and he just slowly rips Museo off his wheel. He's They're like six seconds apart for all these K, and then, and you're right, it's just epic weather. There's rain and mud, and people are crashing all over the place, and everybody's flatting. It's, it's awesome. just perfect Paris-Roubaix, you know, just yeah. vintage stuff. And I watched... Shamil, I love watching these old videos and comparing positional notes that I see and just observations I have in comparison to where modern bike fitting is. Oh, and interesting. Because there are so many differences, right? So what yeah. I noticed about Shamil's position, he's his saddle's really rearward. Like from a cop's perspective, right? That's knee over pedal spindle. And if you're curious about that, go Google Keith Bontrager cops, K-O-P-S. And you'll find a fascinating dissection of that discussion, what it is and what it isn't. Um, Chamil's saddle is really far back. So his saddle is really far back behind the bottom bracket. So far that it, at, when the crank's at three o'clock or horizontal, his patellar tendon is probably, his patella is probably a good bit behind the pedal axle. Inches. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And then that reminded me of the Steve Bauer bike, right? Did you know about this? Uh -uh. So the year before in 93, Steve Bauer, so, okay, let me back up for one second. I think part of the logic behind this is that when the rider's center of gravity is further back, they maintain better momentum over the cobbles. If you think about it, this is the concept of modern cyclocross tires and why people, you know, suddenly in the last eight years figured out that low pressure was better, right? Mm. Thank you, Josh Portner and all the people who did work on that and figured it out. But like the concept is really simple. If you have like a rigid wooden wagon wheel and it goes over a cobblestone road, every time the diameter of that wheel hits a rock, because the forward momentum of the cart is going to be pushed backwards, backwards. right? Or, or the momentum has to be so great that the wheel kind of hops over that little tiny mountain of that cobblestone. So a low pressure tire deflects, the sidewall deflects and allows the forward momentum of the rider to be less inhibited by that forward rock. And that's why low pressure is faster over cobblestones. The same concept kind of applies. The more rearward you put your weight, the more that front wheel can act as a shock absorber. So I think that's probably one of the reasons why some of the old school classics guys ended up with really rearward positions, even at the expense of some of their biomechanic efficiency, biomechanical efficiency, because when you're too far behind the bottom rack, you start to paw at the pedal a little bit. You can't drive forward at 12 o'clock. You start to actually almost dig your heel in and push. Mm -hmm. But they probably took that as acceptable because they felt intuitively, this is what I love about elite athletes. And this is one of the things Siler figured out too, is that Man, elite athletes, like when you get to that level, they solve the equation on their own. They figure shit out 
So that's why it's so useful to reverse engineer. Like why are athletes training this way? Why are saddles so far behind bottom brackets? Like at this level, what, what do these athletes know intuitively? They just figured it out. Someday they just got on the bike and were like, this needs to be different. And they just made it that way. And then it worked. So Bauer made this bike with a 60 degree C tube angle. It's Whoa. a Murex. There are photos of it. We'll put a show note link in the, uh, in the show notes. We'll put a, a magic linky poo and you can <laughs> click down the interwebs and make your keyboard mudras. So we, this bike is crazy though. It's a Murex, but it's got a 60 degree C tube angle and these chain stays that are like four feet long. <laughs> it's this super chopper bike with this crazy raised stem and he used it the year before and he thought he was going to just smash everybody because his theory was if you were way far back that you just float over all the cobbles. And it was a really cool idea and he just got roasted for it because it didn't do that well. He, I think he was really good on the cobbles was the outcome, but on the paved sections, he was just, it just didn't work. Off the he back, was super awkward good. and couldn't make yeah. good power. And the race is really amazingly fast mm. on the paved sections mm -hmm. between the cobbles. But so I think he ended up 21st that year or something. But so Chamil's bike and probably a lot of the other Belgian pros have similar positions where they're so far behind the BB for this reason. I think that's my, that's my understanding of it. That's my theory. Um, he also, I noticed he had a very flat foot throughout the power phase of the stroke, which is not that common today. So he's entering the power phase with the crank vertical at 12 o'clock with a nearly flat foot. So he wasn't toe down. Mm -hmm. He was not balleting into the stroke. And then at the bottom of the stroke, he's also not balleting down or, or toe pointing at the mm -hmm. bottom of the stroke, which tells me he's driving through the bottom of the stroke with hamstring mm -hmm. and gastroc. Yeah. Rigid lever. He's making that foot right. a rigid lever exactly. for power transfer. Which, yeah. My pedaling philosophy, which I will unpack in detail in another upcoming episode, <laughs> is exactly that. The more ankling we do, the worse off we are. Yeah. That's a general statement. When we're thinking very 50,000 foot view as the body on the bike as a system of pulleys and levers, which it is far more than that. If you need reasons why, just rewind this podcast and listen <laughs> to the first hour. But uh, simplistically speaking, we are making power on a mechanical device. Yeah. on a bike yeah. and so there are ways you can set up the bike that will put you at a mechanical advantage for certain power applications or vice versa at a disadvantage not rocket science the other one is because he had this old school saddle and you can actually see it in a couple shots where he stands up the nose angle on that thing is just like it's got to be two or three degrees up so he's just getting kicked in Brutal. the perineum all day <laughs> which means there's only one way to sit on the bike especially when your saddle's low and far back and that is to sit in a pretty solid amount of forward flexion and this yeah. is one area where we've made a lot of progress in saddles. Thank you, Cutout Saddle. In my opinion, when we took shifters off the down tube and moved them to our brake levers, that was a massive step forward in cycling technology, right? It was, it was, it made bikes safer because you didn't have to take your hands off the bars. It made shifting far more efficient and effective, right? Even though it was heavier and the mechanism was a bit clunkier, it was by far, it was a big advancement. Everyone agrees. My opinion, we made at least that big of an advancement when we came out with a correctly designed cutout saddle because it allows anterior rotation of the pelvis, which improves breathing function, diaphragmatic breathing function because the diaphragm's not stacked on top of your pelvis when you're in forward flexion. It improves glute function, makes you more aero, right? When it improves glute, it improves glute function because if you go to do a squat in a gym and your pelvis is upright, it's vertical, mm -hmm. You can shut off. You're going to be mm -hmm. all quads. All Not quads. only you're going to torture your spine, yeah. but you're going to be all quads, right? So I explain this to people all the time. And it's funny how much your client's experience impacts your fitting experience. If I have someone who comes in and they've got a powerlifting background or a strength and conditioning background, I can explain these concepts to them. And immediately they see a connection like, wow. And it's incredible to me how 
far removed and dogmatic old school bike fitting is from this universe of glute function, glute activation via pelvic rotation, mm-hmm. for example, Yeah. or even knee tracking. There are actually fitters out there who used to, hopefully you aren't recommending this anymore, world of bike fitters, used to recommend that people intentionally track their knees as close to the top tube as possible. I mean, can you imagine someone doing a heavy deadlift or squat in the gym and then being told to put their knees narrow? Yeah. Like no faster way to disaster, right? Yeah. Just about. Yeah. So anyway, it, it, all this stuff I, comes up when you see these old I, videos. Yeah, it's, it's cool. It's cool to hear you break that down because I, I remember when, you know, when I was growing up in cycling, the difference between, you know, how, how people sat in a bike then versus how they sit on a bike now, you know, even Lance Armstrong's position, you know, yep. Jan Ulrich yep. had a very unusual bike fit. Um, now we have Froome. Uh, from, and you know, you think of people like even Frank Schleck, who was one of those cyclists that a- appeared to ride better when his knees were caving into the top tube. And, the, and, and this gets back to like this question of would he have been stronger if right. he, his knee tracked more like a piston over his foot? Mm-hmm. And biomechanically, you'd say probably. But we also know from sports that there's a lot of variation among athletes and how they look on the bike. Um, how they look on the playing field. I mean, I used to, as a PT, say, you know, you never want your knee to cave into valgus. Right. Because that valgus stress is really dangerous. But if you look at any basketball player, soccer player, skier, they do it playing their sport, they're constantly in a knee valgus it's position. It's about tolerating knee valgus for your sport, right? It's right. making the system robust enough to handle that internal rotation. Right. So Frank, Frank Schleck got really good or his knees were built or his hips were built in a way where valgus for right. him made sense. But we won't know. We'll never know if he would have been well, better. Uh, so here's What the, do you think about that? I, that's a great point. I'm really glad you brought that up. Here's a huge misconception that I deal with all the time when I'm fitting athletes and when I have these types of conversations. And it's simply this. Well, Frank Schleck's knees track next to the top tube. Therefore, everyone, first of all, they make an instantial generalization. Therefore, everyone should. Yeah, okay. Right. We've already talked about an instantial generalization. No, that's not necessarily <laughs> true. Second chapter is, or second layer is, we don't know what Frank Schleck was was battling. I mean, we maybe we read about it. If you go look up all his old Velo News articles or whatever, maybe you'll find out a lot about him. But for all we know, every single time Frank got on a massage table, the massage therapist only worked on his IT bands and TFLs for four hours because he was so smoked or right. he had constant lower back pain or right. constant, you name this symptom here mm-hmm. that probably could be traced to his poor knee tracking, mm-hmm. right? Who knows what that was? Like, this is the thing about the fractal. I see common denominators of symptoms in my athletes all the time when I come in for a fit, but how those symptoms play out is radically different for athletes. So that's point two is that just because Frank did it doesn't make it right. Right. Is that point two? Yeah. So, but point three is world-class athletes are already self-selected to be on the start line of their event because they've got exceptional abilities. That does not mean by definition that they are optimized or they are functioning to the highest bill of their, the best ability of their potential as a human. Even if they win the tour, that doesn't mean they're doing everything to the best of their ability. I'm going to say that again, because I don't think people believe it. I think when they assume that when they see someone win the tour or win Paris-Roubaix, the natural assumption is that was the perfect expression of athletic ability or the perfect expression of that athlete's maximal talent or maximal expression of their best ever performance. If we see Marianne Voss win a bike race, we go, wow, she had to have her cleats in the perfect place. Her saddle height was perfect. She ate the perfect food. 
That's not true. Right. That's almost never true. Right. Athletes win races in spite of, not because of. And yes, there are examples in the pro peloton of athletes who are func- highly functional athletes who move very, very well. Um, Peter Sagan being one of the most mm-hmm. immediate examples. You can see that guy's glutes actually working when he pedals a bike. <laughs> for sure. He's in the minority. He's also the example we want, we want to strive for, right? On the other side, we have Kate Courtney, who's an amazing example of a functional athlete. I see her doing all kinds of crazy cool stuff. Squats on fit in balls with one-armed yeah. you know, dumbbell presses. This is the type of athlete who is training in multimodal aspects. She's challenging her stability under load she's doing it successfully and she's performing at the world level and you can see that she's a functional athlete who's got good balance good stability good flexibility good strength and good power so just because an athlete performs at the world level and wins a race doesn't mean that they are some model of biomechanical perfection or emotional perfection and it doesn't mean they're pain free doesn't mean they have the ideal diet so that's a huge misconception about elite sports and when you start to look at people with a critical eye you can see these things pretty easily Uh, another example is uh christian vandeveld i mean i can see his hip drop from a helicopter shot (laughs) and that was the year he got fourth in the tour it's unbelievable for sure i remember yeah so i mean when you're looking for these things you can see him now he still had amazing success but he was also hampered by years and years of severe lower back pain Mm -hmm. i don't think he ever resolved his back pain actually to a really satisfactory level what he did is eventually his lumbar musculature just got so freaking strong from 10 years of battling it he was able to survive one tour and perform at that level barely yeah because on. hopefully Hang he on. doesn't have back pain in daily life now i don't know i haven't seen him for a couple of years so i'm not sure but i think it's i think it's the line that that we walk as clinicians to say does this biomechanical fault look significant enough? Is this something that really correlates well with this person's symptom presentation? Or more importantly, with their lack of power or their performance, if I clean this up, are they going to be a better athlete? Oh, this is a great point of conversation. Like, okay, I'd like to ask you this, if I may parlay it into a question. So let's say you have an athlete who walks through the door and they've got whatever, X symptom, and you start digging into their physical analysis and you you figure out who they are and you run through their athlete history and you start talking to them and then you figure out, hey, this person's got a big leg length discrepancy, right? Yeah. And they're having problems on the bike maybe. This this has happened to me several times, but their leg length discrepancy is significant or we'll say non-trivial. Okay, next question is, well, have you had back pain your whole life? No. Have you ever put a shim in your walking shoes? No. Okay, this person's 31 years old. They've been walking for 31 years or 30 and a half whatever, and they haven't had back pain. And now they've just started riding in a year and they're getting back pain on the bike. So the question is, do you start shimming them on the bike? And then do you open a can of worms? Because clearly they've got three decades of compensation in their body for walking around with a shorter femur on one side. They've already adapted to that pattern, right? So now we're going to start shimming them on the bike and we're going to open this can of worms. This, This is where things get really complicated. And you can see people who Likewise, who you put them on the bike for a fit and you, you're thinking, my head is exploding right now. How can this person even be riding without severe pain? They've got severe left-right asymmetries in their pelvic motion. Their rib cage is moving all over. The shoulders are bobbing up and down. Their pelvis is moving back and forth on the saddle in all kinds of planes. And you ask them what's going on. They're like, oh, I just want to optimize my performance. That's why I'm here today. On the flip side, you've got someone who looks actually extremely tidy maybe only the smallest amount of asymmetry or hip drop, mm-hmm. 
Saddle height looks tidy, offset looks tidy. You go through all, click all the boxes, and there maybe you make some minor adjustments, but they're on the verge of quitting the sport. They've been to see five fitters, and this is getting right to where you're at. This is yeah. the most likely explanation is we've got to go to another layer yeah. to look past biomechanical explanations Sometimes. for their pain, right? I think it's really hard. I think when we've been trained biomechanically, it's really hard to know. And if someone comes in with a big leg, leg length discrepancy, you're right. You ask yourself the question, why have you never had pain for the first 30 years of your life? Your legs have been the same right. the, the whole time. Right. And you've compensated and you've adapted around that really well. So is there something, is there some psychosocial variable that explains the onset of their symptoms? If so, I think it doesn't make sense to shim them. If they come in and they've been told by a million people that their leg length is a, a real problem, over the course of time, clinicians, doctors, they've had x-rays and they're freaking out about mm -hmm. their leg length discrepancy and they're begging you to help them correct that, you still have to ask yourself the question, is this person's leg length discrepancy really what's driving their symptoms? Right. Or is it just the fear of their body not being okay? Being told by all these people that... Yeah. yeah. And then so yeah. you really have to decide on this continuum of where is this person? Some people come in, they're like, I didn't know I had a leg length discrepancy. I right. don't have any fear around that. Right. And then you have to decide, am I going to start causing fear right. for them? Or do I just hold back and say, no, think, okay. this looks pretty good. I mean, I spend so much more time on in my clinic now um, ruling things out more than ruling things in. Mm. And I spend so much more time um, normalizing things to reduce fear for people that I used to at least make a note of or something that I wanted to treat. Because mm -hmm. I think, you know, by accident, I was creating fear sometimes for people, even though in the short term they said, oh, Charlie knows what he's doing. He's, he's figured this out. He has all these variables he wants to treat. That makes me feel safe. Um, what I was doing sometimes was planting all these new seeds of right. like, you know, this is crooked, this is weak, this is tight, this is, and so I, I still, man, Colby, I still wrestle in the clinic day to day with this idea of how much weight do I put on that thing, mm -hmm. and if I'm not looking at those psychosocial variables, um, uh, I think I think I'm going to miss, I think I'm going to miss things sometimes. Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, like I said, every person's different. This person has a, a, a one centimeter leg length discrepancy that I can measure and I can see and they have had x-rayed and I'm not going to do anything. And the next person has that and I might put some shims in there and I might wedge some things even just to try it. But in my clinic, I'm going to do it in a way that always reduces fear for that person. The way I psychoeducate, the way I talk about it, the way I relate to it mm. is going to be totally different from every other, in your case, bike fitter in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. And this is how you set yourself apart in your practice is by not engaging in fear, fear mongering, fear mongering yeah. when you're doing your fits. And Even you can, if it's unintentional, right? For yeah. sure. Yeah. You, you can hold all that data in your head and not necessarily share all of it with them so that you can make the corrections you want to make while also yes. not making them freak out yeah. about it. So maybe that's something helpful for our listeners if they've been to a PT and look, we're not here to or bag a bike on other people's work or a bike fitter. We're not here to, to smash anybody else's work or as, as Todd Carver at Retail would say, you know, fixing other people's fits, which is a great expression. Um, it's such a bummer in the bike industry that in the bike fit industry in particular, that clients can go from one fit to another, to another, to another, and not really have their problem resolved. I mean, if you took your Audi in to get the engine fixed because it didn't start and the mechanics charge you a thousand dollars and then you went to drive it the next morning and it didn't start, you'd call them up immediately and be like, hey, tow my car and come fix this and yeah. you're not charging me, but that's not the way bike fit works. So it's now, of course, it's a different problem, but it's still, it shouldn't be like that. But 
maybe something actionable for our listeners is that if they have, I, I've had lots of clients come in and say, oh yeah, you know, my glutes don't work or, you know, my hamstrings are weak. And it's like somehow that was the nugget they took away from their session with their PT or their sure, previous all the time. And so what I'm saying is I'm not bagging on anyone who sent a client out the door and gave them that message accidentally or maybe not intentionally. You were probably trying to educate your client about their body. But I think, Charlie, you made a really good point. We need to be very cautious about how we interact with our athletes and the language we use to phrase the, our descriptions we use when we describe what we're finding when we do these tests on them, when we look at their posture or how they forward bend or how they sit on the bike or how they make power when they push on a pedal or make a squat or a lunge. Th those are the social variables that, right. that play into yeah. people's yeah. Pain, pain experience and why it's so subjective. Yeah. And if you're an athlete and you have, you recognize that this has happened to you, then that recognition is a good, probably insight for you because you may realize, oh, this is, this is contributed to me sort of not feeling okay about my glutes. That may just be a story. That may not be you true at all. I mean, okay if your glutes your weren't glutes. working, you'd fall over in half and you wouldn't be <laughs> right. able to stand up. Right. But I have to say, like, I remember times when I was training a lot, there'd be a point in the season when I'd be climbing and suddenly I had this sort of new appreciation, new power in my legs that I felt like my glutes just sort of came online. It was usually sometime mid spring. Uh -huh. And up until that point, I'd been like, oh, this is just, just so hard. And then one day you're like, oh my gosh, my, I feel it. I feel my glutes. So I don't want to like minimize the importance of our glutes. <laughs> and this is a whole other conversation about how much time do you put into training in ways that are going to activate things that you know are important, create balance right. in your pedal stroke. Right. And do you do that for pain or do you do that more for performance? Mm. Um, is it really valuable? Right. Does it really just come down to belief system again? Like, you know, no, the old, the old, the old school model specificity, like just ride more, ride more, ride, ride more, more. And that's going to make you the best cyclist. But we now know maybe that's not true for everybody. Okay. Can we unpack that statement Heck for a yeah. moment? Right. All right. Yeah. So this is one of the things I wanted to look at. So I wrote Charlie a hypothetical and I don't like the word should. I don't like the word average. Don't shit all over yourself. Don't Kobe. shit all over yourself. That's a good one. So but what I wrote him was, I don't normally like the concept of averages as there really are no average people. Everyone is as unique as their fingerprint or my favorite checkism is God is a novelty generator. So nice. <laughs> um, that said, there are common denominators for cyclists, right? So let's say, Charlie, that you have a somewhat typical cyclist walk through your door. It could be a cat two, we'll say, training 12 to 15, maybe 18 hours a week racing on the weekends or doing long rides, a typical program of, you know, training races, intervals, climbing during the week, little or no stretching, we'll say, or strength training because stretching makes your sprint slow and strength <laughs> training makes your arms too big and you won't <laughs> climb fast, right? Yeah. What would you expect to see for this hypothetical man? And part two, what would you expect to see for a hypothetical woman of the same descriptors? Yeah. When, when I saw that question, I sort of wrestled with the idea, you know, is this, is this a gender, is there a gender piece or is it really just like a training stimulus piece? And of course, men and women are different and they're built differently and they have different patterns, I think that show up. And of course, different emotions and different psychosocial factors that show up. But I think to answer the question generally, um, you know, anytime you see someone doing a sport that's monostructural, that's just one repetitive movement all the time, you're going to see all kinds of funny adaptations. Again, those don't necessarily always correlate with pain. Um, however, 
I think they're they're important to recognize and they're important to address um, because as human beings, ideally we're we're able to do lots of things in our lives. Like if you're just riding your bike, but then one day you have a house project that you want to be lifting bags of concrete. You know, you'd like to not have the stiff ankles and the short quads and the inability to fully open your hips and <clears throat> really engage your glutes in a, in a way that you need for that lift. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, the, those are those are the physical changes we see. We see, you know, imbalances in muscle tension from side to side. Everyone has one leg that's producing, you know, 1% more power than the other leg. And after a million pedal strokes, that starts to show up in our body. It just does. It's just mm -hmm. repetition. Um, and again, you're always w deciding how much to weigh those variables. Um, but if I have an athlete that that is monostructural driven and they're they're not they're not um, athletic people, they're not moving like athletic people. Um, I think that's a problem, mm -hmm. and I think that's something that we want to address, especially for that cat two racer, um, because there's such a massive opportunity for them to improve their performance. Mm. Um, if, if they can do those things, the, the right. fear of, I just have to be doing specificity all the time, of course, can override a lot of that. But um, yeah, I mean, there are all types of different ways to do that, mm. of varying your training stimulus and the crossover that happens, the cross training that happens. I mean, I joked with my wife when I started rock climbing, I was like, honey, I think, I think rock climbing is actually helping my running. I think I actually mm -hmm. feel better when I run because I'm rock climbing now. And I kind of joked about it. But if you really broke it down, you can see that there's this new appreciation for your core, your, your tension in your body from fingers to toes. Yes. And there's this new, um, you know, connection that you have from, from your upper body to your lower body. And that might potentially make you more efficient as a runner. I think, yeah. I think older, as I've gotten older and I feel like a lot of older athletes, we have this concept of training age, yeah. which is when you've done it for so long, old you, man just, strength. you just don't need the, the volume that you used to. And right. I think you need more variety for many reasons. For me, mm -hmm. I need more variety because it makes me happy. I mean, if climbing helped my running, for all I know, it's partly because I was spending more time with my wife climbing yeah. and because I was doing something and I love novelty, something new. Yeah. And so running felt fresh to me in a way that it hadn't in a while. So yeah. I don't know if it was a training effect. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that, that athlete's going to have all kinds of, you know, probably aches and pains. Um partly that are the result of the physical adaptive changes of them being in that position for so long. And we know like uh, the po posture doesn't predict pain either, mm. but our brain still wants us to get up and move. So if we're sitting at our desk for an hour in any posture, our brain's gonna say, dude, stand up. It's gonna give us back pain. It's gonna give us neck pain or hand pain to say, time to move. Yes, This is just smart for your body, dude. You gotta get up. It doesn't matter if you're slouched or sitting like a like a robot. Right. Um, it's going to want you to change. And the same thing is true with the bike. Your brain's going to start to say, "Isn't this enough cycling? Don't you want to go do something else, like oh, no, maybe some no. yoga?" I'm I'm a type A athlete, don't man. You, I'm going to ride 200k today. Don't you want to spend time with your family? I don't care if it's hailing. <laughs> so you know, I think that's very similar to sitting in the same posture for long periods of time. Oh, absolutely. Cycling um, is just more sitting. It's just more sitting, and it's yeah. wonderful, and it's very healthy. But uh, uh, that cat two athlete's going to probably be a better athlete if there's some variety mixed in and trusting that it can be really yeah. hard for people. Yeah. So I recently learned a, a cool new word. When you're sitting at your desk for a while and your bike tells you to move and you get up and you do a big cat stretch, that's called pandiculation. Ooh, that's a good one. Isn't that a good one? But, uh, yeah. What's it's the that. What's the panda prefix? Is it a Is there a panda prefix? The pand part? The pan, uh, yeah. I don't. I actually don't know what the correlation right on that exact 
prefix is, but isn't that a cool one? Pandiculation. It's when your cat gets up and stretches and does the spine thing or the dog. Same thing. We do it. It's a yawn, a big yawn. It's is an incredible word. Is right? that is that a is that called an onomatopoeia where it sounds like what it is? I believe is, so. Did I yes. use that correctly? Yeah. Okay. Good one. I'll check in with you for your vocab for vocabulary. Ooh, I like it. Vocab yeah. challenge. So, sounds like what it is. I'm going to pandiculate right now. Yes. You can kind of imagine. We're about due for about a good pandiculation. So, so is there is there more to talk about with regard to training? I think you would ask yeah. me some questions about squatting and and some of these like archetypes that are more. Well, straight plane like cycling is deadlifting you know are those valuable i mean for me cycling is cycling is the worst offender of all the endurance sports in my opinion you look at all the repetitive endurance sports okay let's say rowing running swimming cross-country skiing you know either classic or skate cycling uh what else do we have that's i mean rock climbing doesn't really count it's too it's too stochastic maybe i'm thinking about repetitive endurance aerobic sports cycling is the worst offender of those in terms of of doing to the athlete what you just described, which is promoting specific postural adaptations that are potentially have negative long-term consequences on the athlete because the athlete is most locked in the exact same motion in cycling. I mean, when you put on our little carbon fiber flippers and click into your clicky shoes, and then you do thousands of revolutions in a single ride, thousands, tens of thousands, even in a, in a couple hours, and you're literally every single circle is exactly 172.5 millimeters or whatever crank length <laughs> is in radius. And it's 100% sagittal plane or 99. I mean, yeah, when you stand up and rock the bike, you get the a tiny fraction of outside the sagittal plane. And there's yeah. a little bit of balance demand. So, I mean, my checklist is like, all right, what do we do? We put on these rigid shoes. So that destroys proprioception of the feet, makes the feet weak and flimsy. Sure. Uh, encourages arch pronation unless you've got proper arch support, uh, destroys ankle stability, right? Overworks prime movers in the sagittal plane for the lower body. So we've got quads that are overworked, calves that are overworked in an endurance sense. So they're very fatigue resistant. They're not necessarily strong. They're not necessarily good at, at driving with a lot of, uh, with a high rate of force production, but they've got good endurance. They endure load, low load for a very long time. And most of your riding is very low load. It's very for low sure. torque yes. uh, or low force. And then we have, but then also the problem becomes because cycling is always such a lunge oriented activity and because the axles near the ball of the foot, it inherently brings about any asymmetrical movement that we all have inherently as humans becomes amplified over time, like compound interest. Right? right? The tiniest fraction of difference between your function in your left quad or your right, or maybe you've got a first metatarsal bone that's just one half of a millimeter longer than the other, that asymmetry is going to play out in your pedal stroke because you're on carbon shoes with carbon cleats and carbon pedals mm -hmm. and carbon crank arms and nothing moves. Mm -hmm. The bike is symmetrical and you are not. And you're trying to have this marriage of relationship and function of power with this symmetrical beast, mm -hmm. this whip. And it's just going to you're going to slowly revolve or twist around the axis of the seat tube. So we see really common, what I see really commonly in, in my fit work is pelvic shear or um, symptoms of hip drop where one, whatever you want to track ASIS or iliac crest or even SI joint is rotated forward of the other one, uh, forward in the plane of closer to the handlebars. Mm -hmm. And that can happen dynamically as the rider's pedaling. Yeah. 
and you see it, it's so common. And riders are shocked when I tell them like, yeah, welcome, join the club, pal. You yeah. know, you're a, it looks like you're riding in a crosswind. Yes, right? you're a little bit windswept yeah. or, or it can happen statically where one ASIS is just right. per, kind of permanently fixed the lower than the other. Way. And then they're like, why am I burning a hole in the left side of my crotch? Well, here's yeah. why. And you show them a video, yeah. you're hanging off the side of the saddle. And this is extremely common, even in people who have segmentally equal leg lengths and that's osseous length, not functional which yeah. gets down a whole rabbit hole. So without destroying bike fitting world, like I, I, the point I want to make, and I'm glad that you're here to make it with me is that I think a lot of athletes are really ignorant to how screwed up cycling makes them. <laughs> if we drew a Venn diagram and we put a giant bubble of your, your athletic ability, Charlie's ability to throw a football with his kids or lift a cooler into the back of his car to go to the ski area or hiking with the yeah. family or do that, project where you want to build that fence and you have to move some cement back right. or, or do something that involves eye hand coordination right like play tennis or play tennis yeah yeah uh -huh. yeah that yeah. involves a bit of quick explosive power yeah or pivoting in different planes of movement right yeah. uh, i mean playing tennis you got to lunge out to the side we do not do that on a bike so the more so we put all those activities in this bubble cycling the the athletic ability for cycling would be a subset of that it would be a smaller bubble yeah and the problem is the bigger your cycling sphere gets, the smaller your general athletic sphere gets. Absolutely. Right? And this is where you hear people say, oh, I, I took two weeks off the bike after my season in and then I went for a hike. And man, I can't, now I can't walk for a week because my quads are crippled because I had all this eccentric load. Also on bikes, we have zero eccentric load to the muscles. So that's why you go in the gym and you can annihilate yourself. And that's why you can injure yourself running in a matter of 30 minutes. Because mm -hmm. you've got a big aerobic system that's well-trained. And the muscles are nowhere close to where they should yeah, be. Yeah, the chassis is not so durable. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So these are things that I like to clue my athletes in on and, and coaches also. Um, cycling makes you a really crappy athlete over the long run. And, and that's a bit counterintuitive for some people because, yes, when you're talking about someone who is sedentary, when they're laying on the couch and they're overweight and they start riding a bike, they're going to get fitter for the first six months, maybe year, maybe two or three years. But then there's a bell curve. And on the other side of that curve, your athletic ability, your general athletic ability drops as you only ride a bike. You get worse at all other athletic disciplines. And here's the problem. Not only will that impact ultimately your cycling performance, because if I had to predict over a long enough timeline, I would say that if you just keep riding a bike, eventually most people will will end up injured in some form. Long enough timeline, it'll happen. Not everyone, but the majority. But also, we're talking about your overall life performance. And let me clue you in here. Even Peter Sagan wants to be able to pick up his grandkids when he's 64. Yes. He wants to be able to go run up the side of a mountain or do whatever he wants to do that's active, that requires physical activity besides ride a bike down the road. Even someone who's being paid as much money as he is. Yeah. Right? So if you're a Category 2 racer and you're dreaming of making it to the Pro Tour, but you're not quite there yet, let's think a little bit long term about your function as an athlete. Let's think about your ability to lift those bags of ice yeah. and not have back pain in five or 10 years because you just rode a bike for a decade and did nothing else. Yeah. Right. I, I agree. I would almost say that that's, that's the case with any sport. If you only do one sport for too long, I think yes. you're robbing yourself of that. And with all these asymmetries that you're describing, athletes just end up leaking power 
Yes. Right. There are all these power leaks that they have because they're asymmetrical, because they're just riding and people don't trust it. If they can fill those holes in other ways, um, that they'll actually perform better on the bike. And it's hard to trust that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, the, 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 the world of training right now or strength training or whatever, um, is, is, has gotten diverse around like, do I do CrossFit? Do I do animal movements? Yes. Do I do yoga? Right. Like which one do I choose? And I think they're all wonderful. And when people ask me that question, I usually ask them, which one would you like to do? Yeah. Which one sounds fun to you? Yeah. Um, I've stopped like prescribing things that I think are the best thing mm. um, to people because it, it, you know, it doesn't help them if they're not going to stick to it. It doesn't help them if they're not enjoying it. And if we get back mm. to this psychosocial uh, question of, um, uh, you know, what's going to help people thrive as an athlete, it might be totally different for you than it is for me. You know, for one person, it's going to be Pilates and for the other person, it's going to yeah. be um, CrossFit. Yes. There's a balance there, right? I think it has to be sure. actionable and it has to be fun. The downside I see to that is that people tend to pick what they're good at. And a lot of times they don't need more of what they're good at, especially if we're talking about complementing cycling because cycling it's like, are you a climber? Then what you want to do is go climb up and down hills all day long, right? right? Well, maybe yeah. you need an occasional sprint workout. And yeah. And if you ask them what they're good at, if they don't answer climbing on a bike, then they're probably going to say something like, I don't know, trail running. Well, that's it's probably not what same. you need. Yeah, yeah, it's more of the same you thing. You want to so, help people find novelty, but you want to help them to do it in a way that's sort of uh, suited to them, to their... Balances their quiver. Psychology. If, right? I, if someone yeah. comes in and I'm contriving all these weird corrective exercises for them and they're kind of glazing over saying i'm never going to do any of this stuff yes. i'm wasting you know. my time agreed some people love that and they're like yeah like break this down for me i'm going to do you know 30 minutes of really sort of controlled corrective exercises each day mm -hmm. um yep. and, and they want it to be structured yep and other people want it to be loose so. that's the cook versus the baker yeah right? so i think but encouraging people to get out there and do other things as you're saying is really the important bit it's important to take and, away and to tie back to what you were saying about educating a client about pain and having them look at their pain and understand it, that it is created by the brain to some degree, that education alone can help them make leaps and bounds in their own journey of negotiating or understanding and hopefully defeating or eliminating their pain in their, in their athletic lives. Yeah. The same thing could perhaps be said about educating a client about that's my aim is when I explain to someone how dysfunctional a bike can make you on its own mm -hmm. and then explaining there are all these other things you can do that will offset that and give you more longevity, greater health, and even ultimately add to your success on the bike. Absolutely. And as soon as they understand that paradigm, they're in. They're like, let's do this. Sold. I'll go, I'm going to start doing more stretching or I'm going to do more cross-country skiing or I'm going to go play more tennis or whatever to counterbalance my cycling, strength training, et cetera. Yeah. 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 For sure. Yeah. I think there, and it comes back to what we started talking about, which is this process is emergent yes. and no two people are the same. So if you or I go into a session thinking, you know, here's another cyclist that has knee pain, they need yoga. Right. I, I just like totally yeah. botched it. Right. 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 You know, prescriptive, too prescriptive, too prescriptive. Yeah. Like, let's stay open to what comes yeah. up. Rapid fire. What I want to know is Charlie's take on shoes. Cause we, I watch your video about the tabby shoes and I wore my tabbies today. Just yeah, for you. They're pretty rad. I love them. Anything so, from Japan is pretty cool. Right? I think. I, Aesthetically and yeah, in all ways. I got to go visit my daughter there twice in the last year and I <sighs> fell in love with that country. It's, it's amazing. amazing. It's an amazing it? place. Yeah. I, if I wasn't so white, I would live there. But <laughs> it's just not happening. It's an amazing place. You just have to look at amazing awe place. in it. So in case people don't know, a tabby shoe has a split toe. So the first ray or the great toe as it's known, your big toe, 
can move independently of your other toes. It's kind of like a Vibram, except the ninja version. Yes. The ninja and shoe is will help people understand what definitely. that looks like. Yeah. So Charlie had a video uh, that I got to check out on YouTube recently, and he's talking about the tabby shoes and why he likes them for exercise. What's the big deal about the first ray, Charlie? Why do we care? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the biggest toe for a reason, right? Like it's made bigger than all the other toes. It's kind of like the thumb of your hand. Can you imagine like not having a thumb on your hand and having the dexterity or having it glued to your other fingers? Exactly. Having it glued. It's not good. So, you know, the, the big toe takes most of the loading when we're running and walking and it's our like springboard platform to take off from. And there's a reason it's built it's so big. Um, it also has its own set of uh, muscles that make it independent from the other four toes with its set of muscles. Um, it's the sort of medial column or the, the medial um, point of the triangle when we talk about balance. Uh, so it really is important from a proprioceptive standpoint to help us know where we are in space. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I mean, there, there, you could go on and on about the reasons why the big toe is so important. Um, and having the ability to move it independently. Dorsiflexion. Up, up and down. Yes. Dors up dorsiflexion, down yep. plantar flexion. Um, it, we're starting to see that that's really important. And, and it's uh, ha people having smart feet as I like to say, mm -hmm. um, we're realizing just how important that is, you know, and that could even mean going without shoes and just being in nature with your skin on dirt, concrete. And Wait, what? You could do that? It's amazing. <laughs> I love it. I'm like addicted to being on different surfaces with my feet. I am too. And this time of year yeah. it starts, you know, you're yes. like, oh, I can't wait to get out. Yeah. Um, but the, the, you know, the, the Tabi shoes, I like them not just because the toe is split. Um, I like them because they tend to be lower to the ground. Um, the way we're the way it's we're a no drop shoe right it's, also it's sort of a no offset shoe or no offset uh, yeah but it's also sort of a low drop yeah um that means uh, the drop means how thick the midsole is or how high off the ground you are it's the opposite of a hoka right you know it works right. very high foamy right and then the offset is how much higher the heel is from the forefoot and yeah we're seeing that um you know when you're barefoot your heel and your ball your foot are the same height when you're on flat ground at least um and there's some value in that as well, but I like that they're flexible. I like that they don't get in the way of the foot's natural ability to function. Mm -hmm. They sort of um, don't create a rigid, like a cycling shoe creates a rigid, you know, you and I have talked about that. It's like a box. Yeah. It's like a, like a uh, foot coffin. It is. And, and that, you know, if you're on the bike for six hours, that's going to have an effect on your feet. So you can mm -hmm. offset that by not wearing stiff shoes or being barefoot when you're off the bike course right. you can do Which that i recommend all the time yeah for yeah. sure yeah but um but having a shoe that's flexible and really having a shoe that's shaped like the bottom of your foot if you have a shoe that's squared off it's flat on the bottom it's not eased at the edges it's not rounded off in the heel you know your heel is not flat on the bottom it's right. rounded for right. a reason and we want the shoe to look and function as much like the foot as we can and a lot of you know a jikatabi or a tabi is essentially a sock in japan it's a split toe sock okay a jikatabi is the sock with the rubber on the bottom, which basically makes it into a shoe. Yep. And so we've taken a sock and sort of made it outdoor wearable, you know, yeah. or, or the Japanese, you know, ha have done that. And yeah, they're just a really nice, it's like wearing a slipper around all the time. I think it it's is. a great day-to-day -day wear. Yeah. 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 We connect on shoes for sure. Yeah. I um, have, um, I have some of those tabi shoes and I've also got some Vibrams, the five fingers, my wife hates them. She calls them the frog shoes. She My wife hates mine disgusting. too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're not the best looking shoes. I, I'm waiting for someone to come out. Like you could do a Vibram that didn't look like a gym shoe. I'm, it's never going to look like a normal shoe. That's fine. But 
I mean, yeah, we could at least make it look non-obtrusive. I hope the Tabi, whatever. I hope the Tabi is the hybrid. Um, I'm working with um, Mike Freeton, who designed shoes for Nike for years. He was part of the Bear, the Nike Free project, and he has some really amazing ideas that the shoe industry never adopted because they're so entrenched in the old ways. Right. And he wants to sort of take some of these ideas and put it into this new version of a Tabi shoe, um, which I think is going to be really cool as, as the next so step. Cool. It's going to be rad. And so he's in charge of. Um, Can you just take my credit card now. Prototyping it, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm so we, in. Of course, making it look cool is hard because people aren't used to having that like split toe look. As you said, your wife and my wife both, and it's not their favorite. No, she, she likes, she's into the split toe, just not the Vibram. I mean, uh, yeah, you I look see. at, uh, there's a really famous shoe designer who's taken this to the nth degree and made split toe fashion shoes. That oh, Maison Margiela. It's Margiela, yeah. If I could buy exactly. a pair of those boots, I'd do right? it tonight. They're like grand. For sure. Yeah, yeah they're beautiful. Yeah. They're, they're insanely beautiful. Yes. Yeah. Here we are talking about shoes. It's right? really fun. Right? All day long. Yeah. I have I have a pair of Vivo Barefoot um, Primus shoes on today, which mm. has become my new sort of go-to. Really thin, flexible. All these things that I described, I just think any shoe company that's trying to do that. I love um, the Vivos. I've is got, really great. I've got a closet full of those. Yeah. I'm a big yeah. fan. After yeah. going through many ankle sprains that were, the, were, that were the result of being in a shoe that's too stiff, mm-hmm. too high off the ground, not shaped like my foot, too padded, too much motion control, yep. um, too flat on the bottom. Um, you know, you just whack your ankle all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, changing shoes has pretty yeah. much solved that problem. So I mean, if you're a bike racer and then you go to work and you're wearing traditional shoes that are stiff and clunky and have a lot of ankle support, you're kind of doubling down on creating, I would argue, too much of an artificial environment for your feet. You want your feet to be strong and flexible. You want them to be nimble and also aligned. Like Charlie spoke about that, that triangle. That's the first metatarsal, which is the joint of the big toe, the fifth metatarsal, which is the joint behind the pinky and the center of the heel. That's your tripod of stability. And when, and most people who pronate put a little too much pressure on the first metatarsal, right? That's when your arch is collapsing. We want even pressure on those three points. Mm -hmm. So when you're, if you decide to walk barefoot or check out some of these goofy shoes that we're talking about, that's the way to consciously walk through the world is to think about, for most people, that means putting more weight on the fifth metatarsal, unless you happen to be a supinator, you're in the minority and you've already got, or you're really bow-legged. Yeah. Then so you, you have, have too much weight on the metatarsal. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, really, we want smart feet, right? We want to be on the big toe sometimes. We want to be on the little toe side. You know, your foot should yeah. be able to go in and out. It should tolerate yes. more weight on the ball of the foot. It should tolerate more weight on the heel. We want it to be adaptable. If you step on a rock with bare feet, um, you're getting so much information from your feet. If you look at the homunculus in the brain, the sensory and the motor yes. map of the brain. I'm so glad Another you used that word. Another great word. Yes. I love the homunculus. <laughs> um, if you've never seen pictures of the, the homunculus in uh, the British Museum, I want to say it's in um, one of the, the a museum in London. They have like a a person that's shaped like the homunculus would look. Yep. So the eyes yep. are really big, yep. and the feet yep. are really big. Anyway, yeah. we're getting sidetracked, but <laughs> you get a lot of information from your feet that goes up to your brain, mm-hmm. and your brain makes decisions based on what your feet are feeling yes. to, to do this or that. So Including if you have a postural decisions, postural decisions, you know whether your glutes are performing right. well right. or right. you know. Uh, if you step on a rock and it hits the ball of your foot under your first toe, um, your brain knows to keep weight off that toe. Mm-hmm. If you're wearing shoes all the time, your brain doesn't know to do that, which yes. is why it's so uncomfortable to go barefoot when you first do it. Yes. Because your brain is like, I don't know what to make of this. I, to come full circle, I love Boulder. I've lived here my whole life. Um, but the one thing we're missing is a beach. Because <sighs> barefoot walking on the beach is one of the best activities to wake up your feet and strengthen those muscles and get those little 
all those toes, you know, kind of able to Absolutely. support weight and move. And, and we have the Boulder Res here and I think they're bad bacteria warnings regularly <laughs> that go on in that thing. So I'm not touching it. But E. coli reservoir. E. coli reservoir. Yeah. Even though I did race my cross bike there several times. Many times. Those. Yeah. Many but times. Such anyway. a fun venue. Yes. 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 So um, anyway, that's where we're missing is a beach. But we've got lots of other beautiful things to take advantage of here. So Yeah, the grass, the concrete, like, you know, just mix it up. But yep. but go barefoot. Go wear, barefoot. Wear, wear minimal Touch shoes. the earth. Touch the earth. Nature's nature's amazing. I've seen people that have pain, um, let's say foot pain or ankle pain. And I ask them to take their shoes off and we go walk outside or go in the grass yeah. or in the dirt and yeah. their pain goes away. There you go. It's amazing. Because they're in touch with nature or they believe that it's going to be safe or, you know, whatever yeah. the reason is. Yeah. Um, it's pretty, nature's powerful. Yeah. How do we wrap this up, man? How do you wrap up such a long conversation? We just say thank you so much for all your input, Charlie. And you too, Colby. And amazing thoughts and making time to come here and share with, with me and the audience. And the last thing I'd like you to do is just tell us where people can find out more about Charlie Merrill. Mperformance.com is my website. Okay. The letter M, performance.com. Merrill is my last name. That's my clinical practice website. I'm doing a lot more teaching and my clinical practice is uh, you know, starting to slowly get smaller as I'm trying to educate people and empower athletes and people like you all to do some of this stuff yourself. So you can find me on YouTube. There's another Merrill Performance that does car upgrades, That's engine performance. That is not me. <laughs> anyway, I have a lot of information on my YouTube channel. I'm on Instagram at Charlie Merrill. Those are probably the places that you'll find me most. And um, uh, in the future, I think, you know, look for, for more teaching, more information, uh, more education that you can consume um, to help be able to help yourself. That's where I'm headed. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Colby. Disclaimer. Listen up, monkeys. The ramblings on this podcast represent me and me alone. They're not indicative of the thoughts or opinions of Fast Labs or Chris Case or Trevor Connor or anyone else. Also, none of this advice is intended to prescribe or diagnose anything. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on the internet. So just want to be clear on those points. Thanks for listening.